0: Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now,
1: on with the program.
0: Okay, Zach, you're on the air.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, the following presentation is brought to you in
2: you normal. yesteryear. Valley Who. Review.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo has been tasked with a duty of redemption and affirmation in simultaneous fashion. While it is the nature of our rowdy dows to poke fun while celebrating the glory of cinema's past, the Ballyhoo must engage with a film that's fame has been the subject of more than just a riff or two. Uh, Is it a cheesy movie or an above-average intelligent sci-fi venture, or is it both? Regardless of those notions, one thing is for sure. It was and remains the supreme triumph of ours or any time. So repeat to yourself that the Ballyhoo is not the arbiter of good or bad, but merely a show where you can just relax as we present to you Universal's 1955 tale of astonishment, This Island Earth. See the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds.
2: are beginning a strange journey, a journey that no Earth people have ever undertaken before. Universal International presents the most startling, the most imaginative and suspenseful science fiction drama ever brought to the screen. You'll marvel at the superior intelligence that unleashes its deadly ray. Dave, Dave! Or can kidnap an airplane in flight, Up. Prisoners hurtling through endless space, speeding toward the unearthly furies of a planet gone mad. See sights never before dreamed by man. The battle between guided meteors and deadly rays. They're gonna hit us! They're gonna hit us! <laughs> a planet doomed to destruction. While captive earth people fight for their lives. It is indeed typical that you earth people refuse to believe in the superiority of any world but your own. Run, Ruth! Run! <laughs>
1: Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, this Island Earth premiered to a public willing and ready for more tales of other worlds. And despite being a box office success, its critical reception was lesser than the films around it, which led to a generation of budding filmmakers needing to rediscover it and reappraise it. In that process, though, it became the subject of experiments by the mad Dr. Clayton Forrester in 1996's Mystery Science Theater 3000, The Movie. Consequently, the film is in the middle of a debate as to whether or not this film has been badly abused by the satellite of love, or is it a cheesy film that's worthy of anything else they've riffed from uh, The Amazing Colossal Man on down to Manos' Hands of Fate? Um, Spoiler, Manos is worse. Uh, but the answer may not be as clear-cut, and we need one, more than one brain in this room to suss out the fate of the Metalunan voyage to salvation. We have aboard this spaceship to the Hollywood stars a writer and podcaster whose knowledge of Alex P. Keaton and tourism is as vast as the very universe itself. It is now upon him, though, to give us a doctorate-level thesis surrounding the legacy of this island earth. Please welcome back to the show Mr. Phil Vecchio.
0: Hey, Zach. Thank you so much for having me back.
1: Wow. This is uh, this is a challenge you've brought to the show, Phil. Oh no! <laughs> it's, it's like looking at look. Let's look at it this way. For example, Plan Nine from Outer Space. Okay, it's very <laughs> easy to make a case for the movie. Very yep. easy because yes, it's bad. It's very bad, <laughs> but there's so much admiration you can have for it. This island Earth is a good movie and yet it is incredibly fun to make fun of (laughs) yes
2: yes, and
1: i learned the power of that when watching mystery science theater 3000 the movie with my girlfriend uh needless to say she likes the bots more than she likes the metalunans (laughs) (laughs) um so i gotta ask you phil What's your history with this film? Does it begin on the satellite of love, or was it before? So
0: it does begin on the satellite of love. I first saw the Mr. Science Theater 3000 movie before I went and watched. Of course, immediately went out and and found it to watch the you know the complete piece, which I love doing. I mean, my favorite way to do it now is to watch whatever movie in its you know as a whole, and then go and watch their take on it. Uh, but at right. the time, you know, there was I didn't have access to it, so. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I, I, you know, I already loved, uh, mystery science theater 3000 and loved watching old, like B movies and stuff. So it was like an easy, you know, introduction for me. But once I saw it, I mean, I think it's a great movie all by itself. Um, you know, from a certain point of view.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm glad that you found it the same way that I did, which was through mystery science theater 3000, the movie, um, for audience context. Um, I got the film, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, after having watched some riff tracks, um, which is the follow-up that Mike Nelson, Bill Corbett, and Kevin Murphy did off of MSC3K. And I became a fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000 through the movie. Um, Little did I know that it would technically be the weakest experience with Mystery Science Theater that I would have by comparison to episodes of the show, because it's funny, because this... This episode of Ballyhoo is is gonna cover a film from 1996 by accident, because <laughs> the way that they got this Island Earth as the experiment and what they did to the movie and to their own movie in the process, um, and by they I mean Universal, right? Uh, it's very very fascinating, but it, it, and it would be enough if it was just that conversation in terms of production, but this Island Earth. Has an interesting production story behind it, um, and there are questions that will come up in this discussion that we haven't really had before, not even with Plan Nine from Outer Space. I think we can mm. s- safely, you know, answer the question of like, if you know, can you make fun of a movie while still enjoying it? The answer is yes. Oh, definitely. It's a very <laughs> clear cut answer, um, but but I think that nuance in that discussion might be fun after we've wrapped up like talking about the production and plot. Um I wanted to I wanted to kick it off um with the uh w- with the involvement of the director Joseph M Newman. Newman uh, brought this property to Universal. So this was not something Universal was seeking to do, but Universal at this point in their history was starting to embrace sci-fi films when they became Universal International. The new administration wanted to focus their attention on prestige pieces and no more B-films. So they were shutting down the horror unit. They were very very much saying bye-bye to Abbott and Costello as much as they could. Um, But that turned out to be the worst possible decision in human Mm. history because they lost money. Um, now, Phil, you and I are both aware that Universal, up until MCA bought it, uh, was a studio constantly on the, t- on the verge of collapse. Right. <laughs> um, and that Monsters, Deanna Durbin, and Bud and Lou saved that studio's ass so many times. Now, it's actually Bud and Lou that save those departments again, because, they needed to get back into B production in order to justify the cost of their A pictures and to just make money, period. And Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein was the result of that. But mm-hmm. more of the, 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 the gothic castles went away because the trend started becoming science fiction, stories of, of uh, other worlds. We are living in a, a, a post-atomic age. Or, or we're living now in, in the Atomic Age, I should say. Right. We're post-war. The bomb has been dropped. Suddenly, all the all the rules we have about warfare are out the door. And now we're living with something that could kill us in an instant. <laughs> uh, and so, naturally, our thoughts turn to, where, where are we going to go after we blow ourselves up? <laughs> I know the moon. <laughs> right. <laughs> We gotta, we've got to find a backup plan. Um, now that backup plan has been inhabited by billionaires. <laughs> so as so now we've got to look towards inside the Earth. I think we're going towards um, well, the 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 uh, time the time machine territory. The Morlocks, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, the Morlocks. Yeah, we're gonna fight. <laughs> I was gonna say the Modocs, and I'm like, no, no, no <laughs> close. It'd be amazing if we all turned into floating heads that are look like Corey Stoll. That'd be amazing. <laughs> um, see Ant Man Quantum Media, guys. Technically, it's important. Um, <laughs> uh, now, um, so the sci fi trend kicks off for a lot of other studios. Universal wants to get in on that game. Now, they've already kind of technically reinvigorated their horror department. Um, because they have a gentleman by the name of William Alland uh, at the helm of producing for them. Uh, and uh, the uh, one of their big successes the year before is a little, a little film called The Creature from the Black Lagoon. I
0: have heard of that uh, one.
1: <laughs> yeah. But they had also done It Came from Outer Space uh, a, a year before that. Uh, Jack Arnold directing both of those films. It came from outer space is actually a really good film, uh, but that goofy alien kind of uh, ruins elements of the of of the uh, impact of that film. Ruins on the one or hand
0: elevates. I would make the argument, you know.
1: Well, okay, because we'll have a similar discussion with this island Earth and one of its <laughs> monsters. Yes. Um, it's I would let's let's look at it this way. Would you agree that it's arguable that a movie's uh philosophical points can be undercut when you stick in an alien not one that's written into the script but one that is stuck in i uh, yeah, I would definitely
0: um, agree with because that because
1: the yes. argument could be made for it came from outer space that visual f- yeah yeah physicalizing the alien <laughs> is a little undercutting but I get it you're doing a 3D movie you need to show that fucking eyeball <laughs> but um so now uh with with this island earth this is not a property that they have like even remotely found their eyes upon um it starts off as a novel by raymond f jones or more of a serialized kind of situation Mm -hmm. um joe dante in the behind the scenes feature on this film said that it came uh from thrilling wonder stories um and uh uh, the the Newman was tapped into the analogy of the Interocitor and the utilization of islands and civilizations during World War II to build weaponry and equipment. This was his. This is what fascinated him about the story. Um, the notions of human beings working with aliens uh, was another big point in his in his corner of like we need to take this 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 property. So they worked with. Uh, the author and eventually got the rights to uh, to, uh, the rights to the piece uh, for their own production company to either produce independently uh, and then sell to a studio or to sell to a studio and then attach themselves as the creative forces. Now, uh, Newman had a connection to Jim Pratt at Universal. He's one of the executives at Universal International. Um, they uh Pratt was wanting to equal the prestige of sci-fi films that were elevated at other studios output. Um they'd already had, I believe, uh the day the earth stood still. Mm-hmm. Uh you could even point to them as like not, not, not space, but sci-fi. Yeah. Um, and the thing from another world uh even uh gained its own form of uh, of prestige Howard Hawks being a producer of it certainly helps uh, and so they wanted to get the property Newman attached himself rather than having another person being brought in and assigned he's like no no stand back I know what I'm doing <laughs> <laughs> I, I can handle this now they initially had a uh, a screenwriter attached to this uh, Edward G O'Callaghan or George O'Callaghan as he was known uh, who tapped into the screenplay? And the screenplay for this film was far more set piece driven because it was assumed that's what would sell the product, which it kind of did. Um, and it gave them set pieces that didn't cost Universal an arm and a leg to do, really. But William Allen, he's wanting to get artsy, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> which is a bad idea.
2: <laughs>
1: no, it's not. It's a great idea. Um, for the context that people have already heard but want a refresher, William Allen started with the Mercury Theater Company uh, out in New York, worked with Orson Welles. He was the reporter Thompson and Citizen Kane. He had worked his way into Universal and had become this producer of films like Creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, and the it came from outer space. But he's wanting to up the scale of uh, of the film, and he w- he wants to be a little bit more classy. Right. Um, I don't think he is under a false illusion of his genre and what will be taken seriously, but he wants to shoot for that goal if possible. Um, and uh, Universal was kind of keeping him in a box, so this is this is potentially a place where he can strengthen where he can strengthen the script and put his influence into it. And he was not happy with this script because of all those set pieces. So he pleaded with Universal to get Franklin Cohen, the writer, um, who would repolish this script, to have far more of a focus of what the novel is interested in and not so much relying on these set pieces. Now, as to whether or not the balance is struck will be (laughs) determined by our discussion. I want to make the argument that it is because it is it is a film that is is very focused on its goal but i don't think it achieves what it wants to achieve the uh in full i think it's it's a uh, it's it's um uh, it's a little complicated to that degree yeah. um now they um to save money uh and more focus the finances towards the uh the, the the elaborate set design and special effects that would be needed. Universal had a plethora of stock players attached to their studio. Um, names names that run the gabbit from Bud Abbott and Lou Costello, uh, on down to uh, uh Donald O'Connor. And of course, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. y'all remember when I was a a scientist. Who didn't know where my fucking rat was? And it turned out it was in my coat pocket. Yeah, yeah. It was a great time over Universal. They treated me very well, very well. Rawhide, who needed it when I had Universal. <laughs> for 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 those who may think I'm joking, I'm not. Um, in fact, the treatment of the way he was kind of treated at Universal kind of pushed him into television. <laughs> Gave gave him far more flexibility to go to Italy and make movies with Sergio Leone. <laughs> watch, you know what's a great idea, guys? Watch Revenge of the Creature, which is one of his earliest roles, and he has a cameo a cameo level role in it. Uh, and then watch Cry Macho, and just see where A went to Z. <laughs> Connect the dots. Not a not a bad movie. He needed to be 20 years younger to do the role he was assigned. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, Yeah, this crime out show is just full of disappointment. What isn't is the island Earth, which we're be- we'll get back to here. Yes. But um, the prestige actor in this film, Phil, what have I told you that of all the people in the world they could have gotten for prestige, they settle on Jeff Morrow. I mean, uh, Jeff Morrow. That's
0: prestige. I mean, he's great. Kind of – Yeah kind of brings a lot to the role of Exeter I'll tell you.
1: Yeah, he he had uh been he he turned to acting relatively late in his career. Um he uh what his big big break uh from a film standpoint would have been the robe. Um mm-hmm. and uh he uh also um was in a a, a budget film like Fight to Chiangjir, uh Captain Lightfoot. He would also be in some westerns after this. Um, but you're right. You're not joking. He does make everything in this film believable. Yeah, uh, he, he and does. it's not. It's not even from his. It's not just his performance, though. the The script gives Exeter a lot of empathy, and Morrow infuses it with empathy. So, like the the uh, the amount of what. Morrow is asked to do is very much to carry the emotional weight of the movie mm-hmm. um, which is important because the other people he ha- that we have in this film to uh, create the scales of balance here are Faith Domergue and Rex Reason <laughs> um, who are um, not uh, they're fine they're fine <laughs> they're fine in the movie yeah I I I do, and and now I actually I have a question for you, Phil. Do you know the story behind Faith Domergue and her as an actor? Not,
0: I mean, not in particular. No, tell me.
1: Okay, uh, okay, so there's there's an easier way to tell this. Is that I can just tell you go watch the movie The Aviator, um, with, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, Howard Hughes had Howard Hughes had a penchant for creating stars. Uh, he he kind of discovered Gene Harlow. He definitely discovered uh, Jan- Jane Russell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Ma- but Domergue was in the gamut of the next possible ingenue, um, and unfortunately, at this point, Hughes is spending years upon years upon years to finish up the movie that he makes for her which is vendetta um and uh she the the film also uh, the film the, the aviator also suggests that she was also a companion mm-hmm. of uh, of of his and probably at not appropriate age mm-hmm. <laughs> um mm-hmm. uh, to say the least um but uh, regardless though vendetta does not really give her the boost that it gave Jane Russell for doing the outlaw. But, um, she does find herself cast in films, um, uh, mostly B level films. She's in Westerns or, uh, noirs and melodramas, but she's not given anything of hefty value. I think she's a very talented performer. I think she actually has a little bit of the Hoxian grit, mm-hmm. um, um, I just don't think it's as strong as other Hawks women uh, that, that come through the the pipeline. Um, So she, she comes into this. She does give this film something that it wouldn't have if it's just macho man versus science man. Um, I think she, she, I think she does kind of like filter out the butch Rex reason to, to give relatability because I, I think that Rex Reason is the the John Loder of this film, where he's I don't find him to be the most compelling performer in history at all. He uh, he uh, it's a little one note. Yeah. Yeah. L- Lyle Talbot feels far more charismatic than Rex Reason, and I don't think that that's a bad thing for the role of Cal Meacham but I would be interested to see Rex reason in other films. Cause it's the only film of his I've ever seen. And I want to see how much his range is challenged in other films, because it just seems like, again, like he's just, he's there to look pretty and right. to kick ass when needed.
0: <laughs> and to have an incredibly deep voice.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, now there is though a prior Ballyhoo connection in this cast. Uh, the Douglas Spencer plays the monitor in this film. Douglas uh Spencer was Scotty, that annoying reporter in the thing from another world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he already had some sci-fi ca- ca- credit under his belt. Um, now, the film uh uh had to was kind of rushed into production very quickly. The deal for the purchase of this piece was made on December second, nineteen fifty three. The cameras already start rolling in the last week of January, 1954. (laughs) That's quick. Two months (laughs) to get a sci-fi epic underway. (laughs) The only thing that I can think of that relates in terms of quickness was getting the deal approved to make Lord of the Rings at New Line Cinema because that jerk Harvey Weinstein gave peter jackson two weeks to find another studio willing to carry the load (laughs) (laughs) and they and thankfully bob shea was there like an angel going like i'll take it (laughs) um now um so production begins um i have here for per variety uh that uh filming was to start on january 30th 1954 um they uh uh, and, and the announcement of Morrow's casting only comes the day before, <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, you know he probably was already cast, and then the story is leaked. But that still right. feels like a big, like a big uh, jump. Like, and the the story of Newman having set, anything set up uh, with his production company is only in September of 1953. <laughs> huh. So there's uh, there's a lot of like expeditious nature surrounding newman as a as a creative now uh there are elements of makeup and special effects that are integral to this film and uh franklin <laughs> co franklin cohen and bill Allen were very adamant about one thing from that original script get rid of that fucking mutant <laughs> didn't like the mutant. Didn't like the mutant. They felt it was unnecessary to the story. And Callahan built it into the script to keep the danger flow going. He wanted to keep the suspense and tension going. And he thought, well, a giant mutant will solve this problem. <laughs> um, now, Newman and Newman even said it was one of the ways he would get Universal to get the film to appeal to all age audiences. Now, and and we could stop right there for a second and ask a question for you as you Phil, as a as a kid growing up, did it make it easier to go to a movie if you knew there was going to be some kind of like fun effect or monster involved?
0: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> in a way, I understand the logic there. Because, I mean, think about, like, I don't know, when I was a kid and I would watch a movie. Let's say uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is a great example. Okay. I love that movie. As a kid, I tuned out until I got to the Chocolate Factory. All the stuff of the people talking beforehand, blah, blah, blah show up at the chocolate factory. That's the part that
1: I was excited about. Right. Being cornered by other candy men in a tunnel. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <all> that. <laughs> that, that's didn't, a, that didn't, I mean, that didn't do anything for that. you <laughs> now
0: as an adult though. Like I go back and watch it in the dialogue in that part, the story of like all the funny ways people are trying to get the, the candy bars. Like there's so much great stuff. That's like, almost my favorite part of the movie now. But as a kid, I needed that visual stuff to get me like engaged. So I do kind of understand that logic that, you know, if it's just people talking, adults talking, it's easy to tune out as a kid.
1: Can I, can I reveal my version of that? Yes. Because my dad took me to Willy Wonka in a theater and I kind of was on board from the get go. It was, it had a lot of music. It was fun. And then scared the shit out of me by the time the blueberry happened. (laughs) (sighs) Thanks dad. But, um, my version of this, Phil. This will a- this will show my age. Was the promise of a talking kangaroo in Kangaroo Jack? <laughs> we were promised a talking fucking kangaroo in Kangaroo Jack in the trailer. He hip hopped. He sang that song, and in the majority of that movie, he is silent except for one dream sequence. We were lied to. We were lied to as children. Kangaroo Jack was a big fucking lie. By comparison, the Crocodile Hunter collision course delivers on its promise tenfold because at least Steve Irwin fights somebody at the end of the movie. (laughs) So there you go. That ages me down to a certain level. Yep, yep. <laughs> and I'm sorry if I made you feel old. I mean, now, you know,
0: it's I remember when that movie came out, but I was a little um, older than being interested
1: in it at that point. <laughs> it was the 2002, so you're more interested in other films by
0: yeah. comparison? Yeah. Okay, When Fair I saw enough. the trailer for Kangaroo Jack, I was like, oh, I'm out. You know? <laughs>
1: if you weren't like Jerry O'Connell, what have you? What have you become?
2: <laughs> no,
0: no, I just, I think I didn't pay any attention to it at all. But, you know, again, this was post-college for me, so I wasn't yeah. watching kid movies at the time, you know.
1: You're, you're too
2: cool for Kangaroo I was. Jack. Then, I, then I've come
0: full circle, and now that I have my own kids, I love kid movies again, so, you know. It's there all you go, yeah,
1: yeah, of course. We all have that one moment. Well, uh, you know what, I, I'll... I'll I'll give myself an addendum. I never lost my love of the Muppets and went to see that reboot movie four times in theaters. Oh. And took and took actively took people in my film school to be like, no 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 no, we're going to the Muppets <laughs> right fucking now.
0: Um, <laughs> the Muppets are ageless and timeless. That's like out. That's not a kid movie. That's for everyone all the time.
1: Yeah. Well, you yeah you'd think, but like some people look at you weird if you're still watching Muppet movies in high school. They looked <laughs> at me weird. Now, um, so so they didn't want that mutant, but. They got their they got the mutant. They the, the 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 higher ups were like, "Nah, you need a fucking mutant in this movie."
2: Or mutant, um, so, as they say,
1: mu- mutant. Yes. <laughs> imagine, imagine if that's how they pronounce it in X Men movies. There would be a whole. <laughs> there'd be like another five minutes attached to the runtime. <laughs> yeah. um, mut- mutants. Mutants. <laughs> uh, mu- does it bother you, Charles, that uh, nobody will accept us, mutants? <laughs> it does indeed, Eric. Um. Jack Keegan, the designer, went back to an, a, a design for It Came From Outer Space for the design of the mutant. It was an original design for that film, got thrown out the window, then they picked it back up out of the garbage can and said, huh. hey, this is our mutant. So that that that's actually funny because th- I, I get the feeling that like fate literally intervened for both films. Because the mutant works in this film from a design aesthetic. And it would never have worked in It Came From <laughs> Outer Space whatsoever. It would not even touch the the eyeball situation. Yeah. Um, now, there's also the makeup for these... For Jeff Morrow and all of his other metalunans, because I don't know if you know this, but they have foreheads the size of Ted Danson if he were if if he were a mutant. <laughs> yes, although um, no no
0: no one else uh, in the movie seems to notice that. So
1: no 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 nobody nobody acknowledges. We'll get to it. Nobody acknowledges. It takes that's why the satellite of love is needed because they point it out. <laughs> right. Right. Um, now the wigs on this were so white that Jeff Morrow had this to say about the process. The wigs were so white that we were all very worried, especially the hairdresser, about how they would end up looking in the film. I did a test, and it was printed and delivered on a Monday. The same Monday, we started shooting the picture. And as we (laughs) predicted, when we saw the dailies, we saw that my hair came out pure white. It was terrible. So they printed the film darker, but that made my skin look so tanned. It looked like I had been out in the sun my whole life. <laughs> and that is, that is very, that is very true because of the final film, especially in that lovely restoration that uh, screen factory did. He, he does look like he took some uh, skincare advice from uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> because. It, <laughs> Yeah. It does look abrasively, you sprayed this on, like, and I, so like, I, I didn't think that color correction would be an enemy. I thought it'd be an <laughs> asset, but well, when you're it, printing it in the prior process, that's what happens. Well,
0: and that's what, uh, I, I mean, maybe this was subconscious, but. The all the other connection here with Willy Wonka is that they look just like Oompa Loompas with like big foreheads, wait, different wait. hair color. But I'm telling you, look at the like hair design and the makeup, the darker like purple, like orangish skin. They're basically Oompa Loompas with tall foreheads. I I almost wonder if someone went back and and got it from. The, I i kid you not. You're flabbergasted.
1: Wait a minute. What if Phil? Yes. Hear me out on this, okay? okay. He- hear me out. Okay. What if the Metalunans had visited us before,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they went to the little country that the Oompa Loompas lived in before Willy Wonka forced them into slavery? Yeah. <laughs> and what if that's a part of that plot? <laughs> um, you can sugarcoat it all you want, Roll Dahl. No, it's there. <laughs> yeah, it's there. When we have to deal with it. That and his unfortunate anti-Semitism. Um, <laughs> uh, but what if the Metalunans went down there and made love to one of the locals in that country? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is how we got the Oompa Loompas. Oompa Loompas are something. aliens. Yep. Calling it. Yep. Oompa Loompas are an alien race brought to... London, yeah, and they make. make I mean, ch-
0: think of their the Wonka Vision technology, where they can like you know zap stuff into the TV. Like that's that's basically an interositor just you know with a little bit of tweaking.
1: Oh my god! <laughs> this Island Earth is in the same universe as Willy Wonka, and I'm convinced.
0: I'm convinced. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And that's why Willy Wonka can hold on to them for so long as a workforce. Their whole planet's been destroyed. They have nowhere else to go. (laughs) They have nowhere else to go. They're trapped on Earth like Superman. They can't can't get out. (laughs) This is depressing. This made Willy Wonka the chocolate factory. (laughs) 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 <laughs> this I can never read that book to my nephew now without going into a five-hour chat about yeah. the history of the Oompa oh,
0: and I just realized in the follow-up sequel, the Great Glass, the Great Glass Elevator, the book, they go into space. The whole premise of the second Fuck. book is they're in space. Oh my gosh! It is. It is. It's the same universe. I didn't realize it. It's real.
1: It's. It. So, which is stronger? The Charlie, the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory Metalunan universe, or the Cloverfield universe. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think there's a greater connection in Charlie
0: and the Chocolate Factory, I'm going to be honest.
1: <laughs> yes, there's greater connective tissue <laughs> in the then in the Cloverfield saga, <laughs> the trilogy. Whatever, they turned in, because I, they saw so was an article that told me about Cloverfield Lane not being in the same universe as Cloverfield, but then Cloverfield Paradox is in the same universe as Cloverfield. I'm like, <laughs> they have no idea what they're doing. But the Metalunan yep. chocolate factory makes perfect sense that to me. That makes
0: sense. All of it. All of it. Okay. So right. in
1: order to in order to uh get this uh innovative and groundbreaking masterpiece off the ground that would influence <laughs> chocolate makers for years to come. Um counterintuitive uh decision made, Phil. They didn't produce this film solely on the back lot. You try to do that to reduce costs, especially Universal, you need to reduce costs. Um, <laughs> yeah. but they'd already started exploring with the idea of filming outside of their boundaries. Obviously, Creature from the Black Lagoon, shot yep. a whole B-unit um, out um, off lo- on location. Uh, in this film, we have additional photography taking place at the Van Nuys Airport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Thousand Oaks. Um, and uh, there was a, uh, there's actually, the in order to maintain the realism of the location that they were shooting in for Washington, D.C., if you notice in the first shot, they have a big orange gas truck. It's covering mountains. Oh. <laughs> so, that, so that it could so you can uh maintain that title card washington dc <laughs> right <laughs> so the um and so the plane lands first at van nuys airport when the plane lands at the airstrip later on um in the story it's in thousand oaks huh. um uh the house that was built was the set for a film called Taproots. roots and it would end up being used also in Creature Walks Among Us because Universal would reuse their sets and stock footage constantly. The, fu- the, the same can be said for Invisible Man. The train footage in that movie is used again in Sherlock Holmes and The Voice of Terror. Hmm. Um, now, driving shots were done on an extended back lot on the other side of Oakwood Boulevard. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the coach chase is in the house of Frank. Uh, that, uh, that's the same, uh, that's the same location in where these, uh, driving shots were done. Hmm. Uh, the lake was Pollard Lake, uh, which was used in Frankenstein one and the mummy's curse. Hmm. Um, so, uh, the, you know, the lake where he throws the little girl in, that's, that's yeah. Pollard Lake. Wow. Um, yeah. Now, uh, and that and that Lake Faith, Faith Domer, uh, remembered the water being so cold, Uh, and dirty to all hell Uh, when it came time to film the scene rex reason had to literally push her in she said i have always said special effects have tried to kill me (laughs) and now obviously it is not fun for somebody to push you in there so i hope rex reason was doing that with her consent (laughs) but i hope so (laughs) i do i do not know rex reason did not reach back to me for comment probably because he's dead but (laughs) probably that's a
0: good reason
1: yeah, yeah, I guess as far as excuses go, it's the best one we have. Um, yeah, died in 2015. I don't believe it, Buster. <laughs> um, now, uh, uh, now uh, the 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 cargo hold uh, was on the Phantom stage. So the where Exeter spaceship has their plane. Right. That's the Phantom stage, stage 28, where they hmm. shot the uh, the Immortal Fan with the Opera. Uh, Exeter's office was used in the Benny Goodman story.
2: <laughs>
1: oh, <laughs> very different, very different films. <laughs> Benny Goodman only had uh, one spaceship shot in it, if I recall that movie correctly. <laughs> uh, and then the shuttle prop was used in Bud Abbott and Lou Costello go to Mars.
2: Oh. Um
1: so again, you know, they're already on the the, the sci fi track here at the studio. Um, and then this is my favorite piece of the set design stories. The mechanism of the interocitor um, uh, and its technology has atom symbols on it. Right. And they have a big atom thing stuck in the middle of the spaceship later on. The skeleton mechanism of that is the same structure that they use for the universal logo itself. Really? The middle spinning console is the mainframe for that you uni- know the, the 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 universal globe yeah. the one that would go around uh that, that would go around and you'd have a bunch of glass stuff around it and whatnot that is the logo they they built this island Earth is ingrained with universal Legacy wow. to a literal degree um and Newman is is tasked with piecing all of this together as director um you know you got to wonder how somebody would handle that um, and how he would uh, adjust his actors to all the changing environments going on. Rex Reason did say that Newman was a sweetheart of a man and he understood that the changing effect shots would be difficult on the actors. So he would help get them into the spirit of it. So he was a good morale booster. Seems like he was a decent guy to work for more or less. Um, and I think it's like, it's funny because it's, we're not talking about a director who has like a, such a storied history for, uh, for the purposes of uh, a, a, sh- a crap ton of uh, high film art, or like it's not an Orson Welles or a John Huston right. or a Hitchcock situation, but he, this is a guy who uh, w- was was responsible for th- this film along with films like, of, of, along with episodes of the Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock Hour, um, and uh, he was. I've actually found this interesting because he worked as an AD prior. Uh, and he was nominated for an award that no longer exists uh in the academy awards which is the best category the best assistant director <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> which is something that will never uh uh, uh get no <laughs> uh re- re- revived again because that's not sexy enough they're getting rid of categories that are essential in the broadcast i don't think they're going to bring back a category no, no um, i doubt it <laughs> yeah so now we're getting into the, the the full effects department here. The head of the effects department was Stanley Horsley at the time. And he was coming up with expensive ideas. And Universal said, you seem to think we have money. <laughs> Funny story, we don't. Uh, and so he stormed off the lot. Uh, and when he came back to resume his job, he was immediately let go. <laughs> so he's replaced by Cliff Stein, who basically had to piece together what he had already assembled... Uh, so, we ended up shooting a lot more, uh, a bigger portion of the miniatures and all other post-effect shots. So, basically, Stanley Horsley starts it and then Cliff Stein has to finish it. Um, now, keep in mind, this film begins its active production technically in 1953. <laughs> March and April of 1955 <laughs> is when the editing department says, All right, it's done thank God, and then hits their (laughs) head on the table. Poor editor Virgil Vogel, uh, who started in the Universal lot in the 40s, he said this was the longest job he ever had as an editor on a film. (laughs) Now, I would behoove me to do a follow-up here and see if that was due to the massive amount of effect shots um, or due to any additional retakes. But for a movie that took... A mo- two months to green light and get ready. <laughs> that seems like a long ass time to be in the editing room. That's a lot of posts. <laughs> yeah. there. I know there are additional uh, shots involved in this film um, to to increase the, uh, the level of excitement. But I am here to report, Phil, that we have a lie on our hands. What's that? Well, we all love Jack Arnold, uh, especially here on the Ballyhoo. We covered two of his films in a single month. Um, But Jack Arnold was not responsible for the retakes on this film, Mm -hmm. as is reported legend. Uh, Some myths need to die, like (laughs) John Gilbert not being ready for sound and Jack Arnold directing the retakes on this island earth. (laughs) Neither of them were true, and we just got to live with that. Um, uh, And so within that, we are left with a film that is quite interesting. Uh, And I would argue... Would make a great Star Trek episode as well.
2: Oh yeah. Um.
1: Uh. But let's get into the plot, Phil. Let's jump right in. Okay. We open up uh, amid space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Babylon Five. <laughs> um, it's going to be very hard for me, and I don't know about you, Phil, but it's going to be very hard for me to not quote MST3K in this episode. Yeah, it's hard to
0: separate them because they are very closely connected. But <laughs> yeah, like, and I the jokes
1: are so. N- there's no jokes we can do about this film that will top the writing for the yep. the, the MST3K movie. They're perfect, um, <laughs> but we get the opening credits. This island Earth can be yours if the price is right. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, we're actually like it's a nice little effect shot of plate going through space. I like that it doesn't preview anything to come. It's very much just. We're in a space story. Now you got to guess what the space story is going to be.
2: Yep.
1: Um and then we are uh, brought out to Washington D.C. <laughs> <And laughs> the stock footage on this is very is very lovely. I do like the stock footage of of Washington D.C. It does it does actually kind of give like a level of like tr- trespassing on something we're not supposed to be a part of, <laughs> like, I guess. But it proudly pronounces it way too much. Um, and uh, we go to an airfield where Dr., uh, Dr. Cal Meacham is getting photographed like nuts. Um, they, they can't get enough of him being I'm photographed. More, more, more. More, more, more. <laughs> Wait, can I get one more, please? One more, Dr. Meacham, please. <laughs> um, and that, and he goes, all right, but uh, be careful. I might get that faraway visionary look. And I'm like, oh, oh, Cal <laughs> has some balls on him. Oh, let's see where this goes. That Cal uh, is getting questioned by the nosiest reporter in human history, even more nosy, I would argue, than uh, Scotty in this uh, in the Thing from Another World, because mm. this guy will—he doesn't get the hint, no. even when he's told <laughs> what is what what the basic premise is without being revelatory. He works. Cal Meacham is. Is a scientist that is on the Committee of Atomic Power. And the most recent discussion they have was the industrial application of atomic energy. Does this reporter not realize that we are in the Cold War? <laughs> yeah. and, and if he gave out any more information, there's a Russian newspaper who's able to translate stuff from the AP because <laughs> they could find it. Doesn't matter if they're not part of the regular UN. <laughs> They'll find out that information if it's printed. Um, um, And that's not that's not a a validation of uh, HUAC activities. I'm just saying from a practical standpoint, if your enemy is Russia, then (laughs) then maybe stop asking (laughs) Um, um, and, and. and he even and he even says like no 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 it's not my conference I, I I'm an independent contractor <laughs> and um I do like though how he kind kind of tries to allude to the fact that everybody's milling around this new technological era he does say a line that I think is great you guys seem to think we live in a push button age not yet not until we can team up atomic energy with electronics then we'll have the horses as well as the cart and I'm like <laughs> yeah. That's fair. Everybody yeah. seems to think that suddenly they've got an iPhone now it can do anything they want, and it's like no, there are limits. Uh, like like wireless data and yeah. like the ability of your phone to stay charged. Like it's not going to just work on eternal atomic energy. Uh, there's a reason why we don't use the Simpsons as the arbiter for our energy policies in the United <laughs> States, because <laughs> because nuclear accidents taught us it's not a good idea. That's right. <laughs> um, Chernobyl Chernobyl was a lesson. We never forgot it. Yep. <laughs> um, although I if I I don't know, I could be wrong. How long did we take to get away from the idea of nuclear energy being a legitimate source? <laughs> like,
0: well, I mean there still are nuclear plants, you know, active.
1: They even have three three eyed fish? I don't think so. Just, I mean I don't know. I'm just <laughs> just wondering for a science project I have coming up. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> um now they're going to get ready for a test flight. Uh, the the border follows them all the way up to that ladder and yeah. <laughs> finally goes away. Uh, and at this point he is now concentrating on the reconversion of certain common elements into nuclear energy sources. But first, plane rides. Um, so <laughs> I, I guess I got the assumption that the test flight was to test that very idea, but they don't make it very clear what it's for. <laughs>
0: yeah, I don't know. All I know is that and I love this about old movies that it was so important to look good that he put his flight suit over his suit and tie so that oh. he never had to not look good when he takes it back off.
1: Oh, dude, it's like it's like Clark Kent turning into Superman. <laughs> yep. if it were boring, <laughs> it'd be. You know what? That's what Top Gun Maverick needed. It's a it's a pretty it's a really good movie. It's a, almost a perfect movie. The one percent it needs is Tom Cruise. Und- undoing his flight suit and out into a tuxedo to suddenly be James Bond <laughs> well
0: That's you know how you... Top Gun borrowed a lot from this I know they pointed out in Mystery Science Theater but they definitely took that buzzing of the, of the tower
1: straight from this movie <laughs> <laughs> maverick <laughs> yep i mean it's, it's there it's real
0: I, I i think a lot of people watch this movie
1: do you think this island earth deserves a, a 30-year follow-up film <laughs> I, I do it's very <laughs> they, influential they have to reckon with the death of exeter and like cal has regrets that are long lasting and lingering and then suddenly a Metalunan comes out and says we need you to help save our new planet
2: like, yes <laughs>
1: And they have to break out the old Exeter ship from the ocean to save the day. (laughs) Yep, yep. That's exactly it. Someone
0: uncovers the ship on the ocean, and it's... I I, I would watch it.
1: Do we have an Oscar winner in our midst? Because we live Mm. in a world where Mm -hmm. Top Gun Maverick is nominated for Best Picture. And I'm not saying it didn't deserve it. I'm just saying if you asked me would Top Gun ever be nominated for Best Picture? I would have said you're out of your goddamn mind (laughs) because the first one would not suggest that. No. And yet, somehow that second movie is better than the first one. (laughs) Um, Controversial opinion, come at me, film Twitter. (laughs) Um, Now, he gets in for the flight, and Newman manages some lovely scope with this stock footage. I I, I was kidding the one in Washington, D.C., but... It's it's, he's going to LA, so he the stock footage actually does a good job of presenting its point, but it's also great fodder for MST3K. My my favorite one used to be Ricola, (laughs) uh, when they're in the mountains, right? But I I love now the shot of the Grand Canyon and Mike going, Oh, when are they gonna fill that in? um but he gets to la he's he's about to land in la um and um there we're at the flight tower at this point and uh joe uh the the human pet comes <laughs> the human lapdog uh comes into the uh comes into the uh control tower um and i love this exchange i love it when is his expected eta Fourteen ten, but he's—I know—a half an hour late. That's my boss, the only guy in the world who can travel by jet and still be late. It's a plane. <laughs> Planes are late. It's not the four oh five in L.A.
2: <laughs>
1: it's a plane. <laughs> Grow up.
2: <laughs> oh,
1: there are, Joe. there are, there are weather, yeah, Joe. Oh, Joe. <laughs> Imagine if he were a bigger part of this movie. <laughs> oh, I know. I you gotta have more Joe. The movie movie might have taken a hit critically if they put Joe in the second half, but it would have justified the MST3K decision a lot more. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, Cal, uh, 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 Cal, I I have the theory that Cal heard that little remark telepathically. And that's when he decided to do the little, the, the, the Top Gun maneuver. Right. <laughs> you know? um, or it's actually also a, a Mad, Mad, Mad World maneuver, but on purpose, because uh-huh. uh, of the, the control tower where Carl Reiner nearly shit his pants. <laughs> uh, that. Um, that is my favorite story from Mad, Mad, Mad World. It's not Jack Benny's cameo. It's Carl Reiner nearly shitting his pants <laughs> <laughs> from the plane going by. Um, and he starts to lose control, though, all of a sudden, Phil. And the shit, and the 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 plane starts becoming green. Yes. <laughs> like, flashing green. Now, this is something where I'm like, I'm looking at the necessity for the monster and trying to look at all the other set set, set pieces. Arguably, if a spaceship turns green or a, or a plane turns green, that's something visually interesting for a kid to get excited around. Like True. That, that could that could draw you in, going like, "What's the green light? What does it mean?" Um, and uh, he's about to lose control. <laughs> of the oh no, he loses control of the plane first and then a green flashing light gains control and yeah. saves him. Yes, yeah, that's right. Um, that's right. And so the wide of the green of the green plane drifting, it's some of the best uh rear projector or uh 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 process shots I've ever seen yeah for a plane because the the back plate is working in tandem with the movement of the plane in the foreground. So it just, it felt, um, from a motion standpoint, it felt accurate. Like, it just almost seemed to kind of like fall, like the plane is following the backplate. And so like, when the plane is following the lead of the backplate, it feels more realistic. It almost feels like it was more well animated than you could get with a car shot Uh, in this era Um, I don't know it just like it felt it just felt way better than anything I had seen up to that point Uh, I was like very impressed by it the the special effects in this film are really good like they're very very good for the budget that they have and the time that they have to make the film
0: the sound design I wanted to comment when the plane turns green this effect there I don't know like you know depending on the TV you're watching it on or what your device you're on it is a most ear-piercingly high-pitched horrible sound that they put in the background of it like I I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it's probably the transfer that we watched It was not like great but I had to like turn it down on those parts because it was so our kids were like, "Oh, what's going on?" And I it was not, I'm assuming probably not universal. You did not have that problem with yours.
1: Yeah, no, um I did. Oh, you did, okay. And I and I I will tell you, it's because it's intentional. It's supposed to be weird, to the point where when I was watching the first half of this film without the robots commenting on it, (laughs) um, my girlfriend was literally just like, "Oh, that sound." Yeah, okay. Yeah, (laughs) I'm aware. And we don't have, we still don't have our sound bar hooked up, so it's not even modulated by the sound bar. (laughs) It's coming out of the TV. Yeah, and it is a very piercing sound, and. It's one of the many uh, unique sounds coming out of this film, not just from a sound effect standpoint, but from the music standpoint. Mm-hmm. And and part of that actually comes from this is pre. This is not using a theremin. They used right. an entirely acoustic score with traditional instruments, and they utilized a vibraphone, which was like a xylophone with a motor in it. Um, they realized that you can make a strange sound when collided with traditional instruments and that the sound waves would interact with each other. So it's a, it's an acoustic instrument interacting with this vibraphone. It's very, very interesting the way they did this, quote-unquote, non-electronically. Mm. Um, so the plane does land safely. Um, and J- Joe, <laughs> Joe goes like, Cal, I know everyone's seeing flying saucers and screwy lights up in the sky. Well, you can put me in the booby hatch too, because I—so help me—I saw this ship turn bright green up there, um, and and they decide to keep it a secret. I like uh, he asks him if the flight control guy was blind, and he goes no, and he goes I don't know, neither was I, and he goes well until we find out what it is all about. All three of us were blind, and I'm like, that's that's a more succinct version of we didn't see nothing compared right. to. The way they handled it in Plan Nine from Outer Space—they're
0: muzzled by Army brass.
1: They're muzzled by Army brass.
2: <laughs> no, and that's a, one g- of
1: the
0: first parallels here. I guarantee you that Ed Wood watched this movie, and uh, before he made Plan Nine, because there are a lot of parallels and things that he, you know, borrowed and and uh, you know did his version of it. But
1: do you, do. You- you think him and Bella saw the movie together?
0: <laughs> I, I mean, I, I feel like it. I, I have to imagine in my mind. They went and saw it, and he's like, "Oh, I can do that. Let's make this movie." And then he tweaked it a little bit. Sure, you know?
1: <laughs> I can be Kalmychum. Watch this. Yeah, you seem to you. <laughs> Hold on. I can I get mean... I pro... You guys seem to think we live in a push an age. <laughs> Not yet. Not until we can team atomic energy with electronics. <laughs> I don't think he could have remembered it at this point. No. <laughs> it has nothing to do with his with with home. I have no I have home. No Haunted, despised, living like an animal has nothing to do with him as a person. No, um, no. I mean, they could have seen it because he died in '56, and this movie comes out in '50 middle that's of '55. Right. Maybe he saw this instead of doing heroin one day. You know, like, mm. just gonna just gonna throw that out there as a positive. What if? That's, um, that's a good one. <laughs> the the question now becomes. How and why did this plane turn into Shrek? And uh, back at the lab, they set to work on their latest experimental machine and this uh, which in mst 3 k they appropriately pointed to as a waffle experiment. Because <laughs> it's just a it's just a piece of fucking lead slab being injected into what looks like a toaster. <laughs> yep. And uh, actually, Phil, this is something that we can do. If our memories are serving us properly today, we can actually talk about what MST3K, the movie, cut out of this island earth. Oh, yeah. And, and it's so interesting. I have never done this before with MST3K and this island earth. I have never watched them within close proximity of each other. It's either been one or the other. And I've definitely seen MST3K more than the movie, This Island Earth, on its own. I actually never owned the movie on its own until for this recording. But I had seen it prior. And you can tell where the cuts are by the movement of the bots in the silhouette. And I was shocked to find out that I had never noticed all those cuts before. Huh. Like I have I've never really taken stock of the cutting nope. of this film because they actually do a good job at cutting it to the point where you could still understand the movie itself. Right. Um because the the lab, uh, the the lab experiment involves them looking for a new component, an XC component, and Joe reveals that a company, the the company that they work for, sold him, gave him a bunch of small tubes with red goo in them. Uh, these <laughs> condent, these XC condensers, uh, held up longer than before with no leakage after thirty three thousand volts of exposure. So they test the condenser to observe its retention, and they get about 35,000 volts out of that sucker before it pops and disappears into thin air. No explosion, just disappears. Uh, And so they contact uh, Pete Knowles regarding the delivery, and he says, you guys are crazy. You guys didn't order anything from us. (laughs) (laughs) And Joe's like, what are you talking about? I've got the machine and everything. He's like, no, 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 dude. We sent you jack shit. Bye. <laughs> There's no address on the envelope that he got it from either. Joe should have noticed that right away. <laughs> yeah. Seems like a big,
0: big detail to look over.
1: Anonymous envelope entering a government facility. Yeah. Good idea. Go bad idea to open it without question. <laughs> was, his, was his day so, so busy that he couldn't stop to take a look and go, Well, say this could be anthrax. <laughs> or a bomb. Uh, maybe maybe not bring it into the lab where government secrets involving atomic energy are being <laughs> conducted. Uh, so they go about, uh, they're trying to figure out what's going on with this. Uh, they get a, There is a letter, though, in the package. It says, Dear Dr. Meacham, in place of the condensers you ordered, we are sending you our AB619 model. We are certain it will interest you. From the Director of Electronic Service, Unit 16. So, the words Dr. Meacham are the only things he understands in this letter. (laughs) Dear Dr. Meacham, beep. (laughs) So, they go into trying to drill into this beaded condenser and find out what it is. And it's stronger than diamond drills. They
2: have a diamond Mm.
1: filament drill. (laughs) This is... This is a nuts situation. So uh and then Sam calls about the plane, reports that there's nothing wrong with the plane that they were in. So this is all a big mystery. And that's when we get the delivery. So there is a bit of a cut out a cut to moment in MST3K where you right. go right to the, the mailman going like, sort the mail, deliver this, deliver that. I'll show them all. <laughs> um, dark joke about postman activities in the 70s and 80s. Uh, yeah. So uh, delivery comes with a manual to this Uh It's a manual with metal paper. <laughs>
0: metal paper yeah
1: which they don't do nothing to distinguish that in the set design that is one flaw in this is it that looks they like don't
0: paper and it sounds like paper
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh they look through the book and nothing is understood joe uh coily points out here's something my wife can use in the house an Rossiter incorporating an electron sorter and then cal says although she'd probably gained 20 pounds while it did all the work for her and i'm like okay but ew <laughs> like, yeah I get what you're going at but ew. Um so it has unlimited possibilities based off of what they're reading. What they can understand of it they know that this thing could theoretically solve world hunger. They just got to figure out how it works and how to build it. Uh so they send more teletypes to be intercepted with the proper pro- proper parts to send. Wow. Um and they get an invoice that says no interrater part can be replaced. And I'm like, well, at last, somebody uh, IKEA has a one up on competition. At least they have replacement parts. <laughs> uh, and then there's an assembly montage of people screwing things and adjusting things. Science, <laughs> science at work in George world today. <laughs> and then they finished building it, and they what they've built, no man can say because they don't know what it is. But it does have a triangle in it. <laughs> so yes. they turn, they plug it in, and based. They they, they they plug it in, and then they learn to turn it on because suddenly a voice comes from the enterocitor.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: or how to adjust it so that something can be seen on this screen. Um, and then the voice appears on screen, and it's Exeter! Yes! Finally, another competent scientist in the room, Joe Leave. Now, <laughs> uh, Exeter explains that he is a scientist seeking other scientists for a unique opportunity. Uh, it's an it's impossible that a man such as yourself wouldn't want to find out who I am and where I came from. And you know, it's probably good that they have somebody like Cal in there who is so scientific minded as well as Butch because if it were just that one part of Butch, it would have been kill it with fire. <laughs> but <laughs> thankfully curiosity uh is 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 ever abound in this new atomic age we live in and the possibility of space travel. So Exeter gives instructions. A plane will arrive at 5 a.m. on Wednesday morning and will wait five minutes to depart, whether he's aboard or not. Uh, and then they this is cut out. This section is cut out of MST-3K. But yeah. they place the manual on the counter with the blueprints and then the interocitor destroys it with a laser. And then Cal goes to unplug it, but it shocks him as the interocitor itself self-destructs. So it's very clear that Exeter does not want this technology shared. Right. with other people uh and he wants to make sure that nobody can have a, a one-up on the advanced technology so cal uh decides to take a chance and get on the flight they arrive at the airfield early in the morning joe asks him to reconsider um in the mst3k world it's because he doesn't want to leave him i love you joe 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 goes i love you cal <laughs> um <laughs> and uh He goes for two reasons. Whatever scientific knowledge this Exeter character has should be in our textbooks. And number two, Joe Wilson, my able assistant, knows enough about a certain equipment to carry on for a while. And I love that he used the word certain equipment because clearly (laughs) he shouldn't be touched with blank envelopes, let alone a government science facility. (laughs) Um, And (laughs) they don't even know if the plane's going to land and he goes, not even a moth with a lightning bug attached to it would fly in this weather. Wow, a plane. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, a, a moth with a lightning bug attached to it. <laughs> um, the plane doors open in a way that reminded me of E.T. <laughs> yeah. Like, and
0: the it, little it's, stairs. I love the little stairs that come down.
1: <laughs> and the light. Like the way the light's coming out of it, it's like it's it's vague, like what's yeah. inside. Um, they go in and it's a center seat uh, situation where there's only one seat in the middle. Um, and, I was, and my only note about that was like, man, they couldn't even afford to build more seats at Universal. You can only <laughs> build one. How did. Because I don't think this is a Metalunan uh, design. I think this is a Universal design. <laughs>
0: yeah, although <laughs> like, I will well, say it has a cool effect. You know, like it's visually mm-hmm. interesting. So even if it was because of budget, like it, it was effective.
1: Describe. Describe for people what we're looking at in this ship, Phil. What are we seeing inside here?
0: It's a big empty part of an airplane with a single chair right in the middle. And then nothing else. You've got the two pilot chairs at the front, which I thought this was funny too. Because what's the point of the pilot chairs if they're just being like piloted by no one? It just flies automatically. So
1: It's for his pea-sized human brain to comprehend their <laughs> transport vehicle. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think. And the glowing lights are to remind him of a disco, I guess. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they need all those flashing lights in the ship either. If it's supposed to look like the inside of a plane, probably not. <laughs> and so, uh, that, like that, because it's it's a plane, but it's a space plane. <laughs> like, right, it's a space plane, not spaceship. Space plane. Um, now the. Uh, now the uh, the doors close in on joe as he's telling cal to just get out and they're going like nope too late he got in bye uh and then uh, there is a shot though of before they cut away of joe watching and then kind of uh, of joe watching and then walking off <laughs> that kind of goes on a little too long i was in, my editor brain kicked in i'm like trim like 5 seconds of that it's not needed <laughs> And then yeah, but Cal, that's our
0: send-off for Joe, though. So Yeah, I mean.
1: uh, R.I.P. Joe. Um, <laughs> probably deserved to die. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, now, they land in Bakersfield. I mean the alien hideaway in Georgia. <laughs> Georgia, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, actually, it look, it does look more like Georgia. I was just joking about the California aesthetic. It does look like Georgia. In fact, it looks so much like Georgia that I'm pretty sure they landed on the plantation of Tara in Gone with the Wind. Uh. <laughs> I was expecting Scarlett O'Hara to come out with a shotgun going like, what alien is trespassing on my land? <laughs> um, they're greeted by Ruth Adams. Uh, he's greeted by Ruth Adams upon landing. Ruth Adams Famous, uh, a a scientific colleague of uh Cal Meacham, they've met before, Phil, right? right. They've met before, they've met before. Well, not according to Ruth, not not really. Ruth Ruth doesn't remember meeting him specifically, but then it suddenly comes back to her, like, ah, yes, we met once at a conference, and he goes, What are you talking about? We would go skinny dipping in ice water. (laughs) (laughs) I know you, you know me. Intimate parts of me, <laughs> um, and she kind of brushes off that nostalgia to take him to the mansion to meet Exeter. Um, so they make way, their way up to Tara. And um, no, I'm, no, I'm kidding. They make it to the they make it to the mansion. Uh, Ruth explains her own confusion on arriving and that Exeter's unconventional methods of acquiring scientists have puzzled her. Um, but they are given carte blanche as scientists. Anything they need to conduct the research is taken care of um they enter the mansion there and as they enter they look at a door uh that's an elevator door and she goes the ele- elevators down to exit are slave quarters <laughs> our laboratory and i'm like stop saying slave in a mansion in georgia please
0: yeah <laughs> a too close to home there yeah
1: if they had made this like california maybe yeah. i'd be fine but no georgia Mansions mean one thing and one thing only cotton. and I don't appreciate that. Um, now they uh, they get a tour of the mansion and it reveals other scientists from various nationalities um, and that jo- that German doctor walking by there's <laughs> a great mST3k line of like Heil Hitler. <laughs> um, and then they meet Brack. Uh, the exit uh the assistant to Exeter who looks suspiciously at them uh as he enters the elevator to go to the set of the Brack Show. Um <laughs> the Brack Show, my show. Uh, Exeter welcomes them into his office. Um, uh, but then and we also are introduced to uh uh to to Steve, Dr. Steve. Um uh and uh, I'm sorry, he has a last name. I'm trying Carlson, to remember it. Dr. Steve Carlson. Carl, Dr. Steve Carlson, yes, that's right. It's hard for me to remember because all of the assistants in this film seem to die. And <laughs> yeah. this, this movie is brutal on interns <laughs> and or, or or sidekicks of any kind. Yeah. Um, so they um uh they get uh they get into um Exeter's office, um, and he lays out the plan. He represents a group of scientists who work with but one purpose, to put an end to war, and they need help from the scientists on on Earth. And he has chosen Cal because he's on the threshold of converting lead into uranium. <laughs> this, So that was the, exper- the waffle experiment from right, earlier. Right. But it does not look like that because they don't make that very clear. They're just like, ah, it didn't work, fuck. Um, this is on the cusp of unlimited amounts of, of nuclear energy being within their grasp, uh, and both he, he and Ruth are way ahead of this in anyone in their field. Out of anybody in their field, they are the ones who have the right track going on. Um, and he is. Compl- I love the line: "Be careful, Exeter will flatter you to death." <laughs> and that is a that, that is a point where we can talk about Exeter. He is a very genial villain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but he's not. But he's not a villain. That's the thing. He's because it's not really a secret. He wants this plan to work. Right. He does not want the other plans to work two through <laughs> nine. He wants plan one right, to work. This one.
2: That's <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, he wants plan A to work. Um, <laughs> that's when Ed Wood saw that and say say yep. instead of plan A, what about plan one, one through three. nine? I'm
0: telling you, he uh, definitely watched this movie.
1: Yeah, he did. Ed Wood definitely ripped off this movie. <laughs> um, now they get a call on the interocitor as they're, uh, uh, as they're talking. And so, uh, they're going to get shown the lab. Uh, so, uh, Brack, uh, uh, Brack comes in there, uh, and they are escorted out. Ruth and Cal part ways, um, temporarily until, uh, dinner. Um, to which Ruth says, I'm still sorry I wasn't the girl in Vermont. And then she kind of walks off a little mysteriously, and you're like, you know something? <laughs> and uh, the call on the interocitor comes through, and Exeter is getting a call from his superiors who are unhappy with the lack of progress. He urges them to let him explain his methodology for acquiring the help, but the personnel acquisition uh, has been complete. They'll proceed with plan A. The The leaders are like, fine. But but hurry the fuck up, please. Um, and so they we we get the procession of the evening. We get an alien dinner party, fanciest I've ever seen. Uh-huh. Um, uh, very acquiescent to human design. And Cal asks Ruth and Carlson to take a walk with him uh, around their new quarters in the lab. Exeter agrees. They get down to the lab and they go like, "Dude, we've been trying to fucking find a way to leave." <laughs> We can't trust Exeter. They they can't trust him. Like, and he is like he's not they're not being told the truth about everything. Right. What they're not being told the truth about, the biggest part of that would be a reason enough to leave. But they're not even being told like the empathetic reason why the they would they would need to hurry up or otherwise the planet will be inhabited. Um yeah. the planet Earth that is. Um, and I
0: feel like if they had just been upfront about it, a lot of conflict probably could have been avoided here.
1: <laughs> what is the what is the point of an alien race being mysterious when it has very direct needs and wants? It's yeah. it's it's not a noir film. It's a fucking <laughs> life or death situation involving your planet. Plead for empathy to yeah, the scientists. Help us.
0: We're desperate.
1: <laughs> exactly because you don't have to tell them about Plan B. You can just talk <laughs> about hey, we have this idea. Can you help us do it? Cal is enough of a humanist, probably, to be like, because he's not a he's a butch guy, but he's butch physically. He's not butch mentally, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's a scientist. Yeah, he's not. He, he's not a uh, he, he's not thing from another world. Shoot first, ask questions later. Um, it, it, the scientists in this film are actually treated with a lot of respect. It's really uh, it's it's really fascinating. Like they have boundaries, which I think is really cool because most scientists in films in this era are fucking determined to violate any law of safety to get the answer to the question of like, why right. is there a creature in a black lagoon? Or why are there space vegetables and thing from another world? Like these guys are like, no, 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 no. Play it safe. Let's, um, let's not tamper in things we don't fully understand. Um, so they try to make a plan to escape, but, uh, they uh, they can be heard. They thought they could get away with it by talking behind lead, but the interocitor <laughs> is far more advanced. And the only way they know that they're being watched is because Neutron the cat gets startled. Um, and so uh, this uh, allows them to realize they are being watched. And then we get a scene that is not in MST3K, but is in the movie. I think it's actually very important to understanding the 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 potential villainy that Exeter could possess as a metalunan because Mm -hmm. it has Cal doing experiments and then Exeter kind of wheedles it out of him that we know, we, we know you saw us and it would be urgent of you to get back to work and to do what we need you to do. Um, so, uh, and, and I, and I think it's a very persuasive argument when the interrogator beam <laughs> uh, can shoot you yeah. and they do actually Cal asks a great great question why should a communication device be equipped with a destructive ray and his answer is television waves can penetre, can't penetrate mountains with the aid of neutrino rays we can and then that's when he reveals that the green rays were used to save him in the plane yeah so the green rays green rays good Red ray is bad. Right. It's like the setting of stun to Kill on the, uh, on the um, <laughs> Star Trek. on Star Trek. Yeah,
0: yeah. Then yeah. they have neutrino rays instead of solomonite. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Just wanted to point that out again. There. Well, what if
1: what if we were to develop this neutrino ray bomb? Yes. Well, then you would be defeating the purpose of us <laughs> trying to eliminate war. <laughs> Uh and now he asks Cal to have good faith in the goal and to no longer contact his colleagues outside of work business. So no hanging out with your work buddies afterwards, no going to the bar. Um uh they uh uh we cut to them having a meeting again. They conspire. This is where it cuts back in MST3K pretty right. immediately. Um and then it cuts even more immediately to their escape. In the middle of it, Carlson is showing them the sketches of uh <laughs> of all of the devices as well as the sketches of Exeter and Brack and uh, <laughs> finally the the uh, uh, they they finally look at these plans of like we've noticed that the side of the road on this hill has been hollowed out. <laughs> we don't know what's in it. <laughs> and my thinking is you were kidnapped by aliens <laughs> right. to build war equipment war destruct war destructing equipment isn't it possible that there's a hangar down there (laughs) (laughs) or something Mm -hmm. um yeah but uh, uh uh as they're making their plan to escape uh exeter and brack get a call from the from the monitor uh plan a has been abandoned alternate plan in effect Superior uh, reports that their ionization layer is failing rapidly. We don't really know what the ionization layer is yet. We don't know how it's important. We just know it's important. Uh, and then, so it's sort of a MacGuffin, except it does actually mean something yeah. to an actual human being if you were caught up in this plot. Um, it's not It's not vague. That's the thing. It's not vague. It's very specific and integral to the plot. It's not a MacGuffin because it's not um vague to us but important to the yeah. um audience. Um it's more specific than the 30 the plans that are being sought in the 39 steps. Like that's right. the best way to to kind of extinguish or distinguish the difference. Um so they um they are able to leave uh them but Exeter asserts that they are achieving results and the and he asks for patience. The superior asks him to bring Meacham and Adams to work with him on it um, uh, up in Metaluna. Um, They tell him, nah, keep Carlson. We don't need a third wheel. <laughs> um, three co-stars is enough. We don't need a fourth one. Um, and so they try to make an escape from Exeter and Brack, um, but they already know what's going on. So uh, they use the interocitor to blast the car away. <laughs> Uh, and so Carlson sacrifices himself. Then uh, Ruth and Cal roll into the river. Carlson continues to drive the car, and they that car goes kerplooey. Um And uh, uh, and then finally, the compound itself explodes. <laughs> uh, to which I said, "Rest in hell, Tara." Um, uh, all the other scientists—they're
0: just done with them.
1: Yeah. Uh, and so the Interocitor rays, as they said, were used to destroy these things. Um, uh, the German doctor gets kappluied too because he's trying to be like, "Help me, I'm trapped!" And then, <laughs>
0: <laughs> which they cut um, that out of Mister Science Theater, also. Yeah, they
1: uh, they, uh, they 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 cut back to the point where they don't they don't get the full point across. Like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, they need to get rid of everything. Right. Blowing up the mansion kind of relates that, but blowing up the German doctor on his own is an added little bonus goodie that I'm like, no, 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 these guys are fucking merciless. Like, they have to be for what they're doing. And that's not an excuse, by the way, for k- killing no. people with an interocitor, Ray. There's no excuse for interocitor death. No. Um, Do you
0: think that means that Joe got zapped then at some point? I mean, I know he doesn't have an interocitor anymore, but he saw it being built. He knows what's going on.
1: I have a theory for after we get to the end of the movie (laughs) but i but i get what you're going at and i believe you but i have a very specific theory okay um so the compound goes up in green smoke um they try to escape in a plane but of course it's a spaceship versus a plane (laughs) (laughs) and they get caught in the tractor beam um and their co-pilot, Han Solo, says, there's nothing I can do, kid. We're just buckling down for the ride. <laughs> um, so the plane gets sucked into the hangar of the ship. Uh, stormtroopers come in and try to search them, but they hang underneath the plane. No. No. <laughs> I saw this movie, too. <laughs> Where do you think most of the third act of Star Wars happens? <laughs> Yeah, it's on I, this island, Earth. This island, Yavin Four.
0: <laughs> Every filmmaker has seen this. I'm telling you.
1: Every filmmaker. Martin Scorsese saw this yeah. and knew how to blow up a car in Casino afterwards. Even oh, Mission Impossible.
0: You get the the assignment from the Interocitor, and then mm. if you choose your assignment, you know your mission. Should you choose to accept it, and then this mission, <laughs> this message will self destruct, and they blow up the Interocitor. I mean, everybody. wait, wait,
1: wait, 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 Phil. It's yes. said that Citizen Kane is the most influential film in history I, because it's yeah. a quarry for filmmakers. I'd argue it's actually This Islander. I think
0: it is. I, ah. I think we've made a huge discovery here. Zach.
1: <laughs> oh, poor Arson Wells. He's had so much taken from him in his I know. <laughs> And now we're doing the, we're putting the final nail in the cup. <laughs> it doesn't make Pauline Kale right. But it makes everything we're doing wrong. (laughs) Now they get, they get, they arrive on deck because one of Exeter's men's going like, yo, up the stairs. (laughs) And they get on deck. Exeter apologizes, going like, I'm so sorry, but you know, we had, you were trying to escape. And also our bosses are like, you need to get a move on. So now you're in our ship. Welcome. And (laughs) Exeter assures them we we
0: mean you no harm like steve carlson and Engelbart,
1: like the others in that house what happened was beyond my control what happened was mass murder we're not all masters of our souls that's a nice little phrase coming from you i learned it on earth (laughs) 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 pot kettle black (laughs) point (laughs) exeter and um by the way, I sidetracked for a second. My girlfriend had a question about this film when we were watching the Mr. Science Theater version. Okay. I didn't find this out. Do you think Cal is ADR'd by another actor? <laughs> huh. His voice, I I think that's Rex Reason's voice, but his voice doesn't necessarily suggest him as a person. Yeah, it sounds almost... Too overtly perfect. <laughs> it was just something that I, I brought to the attention because I'm just like, this seems like I would have heard about this as an IMDB trivia fact. Yeah. And I, I, didn't I haven't find
0: it. seen enough of his other stuff to know. So that'd be interesting
1: to compare. No, well, no nobody holds Rex Reason film festivals anymore. They used to do it all the time <laughs> no. in the seventies when everybody was angry. But now now that's kind of just uh reduced down to uh just just this film and nothing else. um, so they uh Exeter really does try to be like try, tries to like get him on th- get them on his side, yeah, and I wrote a note, it's very profound even for a moment to realize how Exeter is a man of urgent need and has applied humanity's worst impulses out of desperation. He yeah. is not wanting to do what he's doing it is it is i was only following orders (laughs) i mean yeah it definitely rings of (laughs) that but it but it but it but it doesn't it feels more genuine than a nazi having some kind of bullshit excuse yeah it has actual weight to it because of the desperation that the planet has now That's not me advocating for any of what they do. No, no. I'm trying to look at the difference between those two ideas. And that's the beauty of the film is that it does bring you a question that you have to answer. It does that a couple of times in the film. And I think that that's the strength of good sci-fi. If the sci-fi plot makes me think, then even for a second, then I can justify its existence hands down. Not every science fil- science fiction film does that, even though they think they're doing that. They don't. So there's there are moments when sci-fi ideas are just stupid, and <laughs> like like that's why I don't think that the Transformers movies are good sci-fi movies. I think they're good action films. They're not good sci-fi films at all. No. And those motherfuckers come from space. <laughs> I'm like, the, none of this makes any sense. This <laughs> island Earth, perfect sense an Autobot planet makes no sense. It sounds like it's designed to sell toys. <laughs> that's, why the mytholog- that's why the mythology of Transformers doesn't work for me, Phil, because I'm like, none of this would ever work.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think you're onto something with the toy angle there. Hmm. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, oh, I'm fairly sure I'm How correct. How is the
0: merchandising line for this island Earth? I never looked into that.
1: <laughs> well, I do remember that there was a blow-up punch doll of Joe made in about 1956. <laughs> Cow. I I am aware that for one year the rage at Halloween was Exeter (laughs) headpieces. And of course, everybody's favorite cuddly doll, the mutant. The mutant. (laughs) If you squeezed it, it went. (laughs) If you if you pulled the pole string, it said obey, obey, (laughs) obey. That's when John Carpenter sued the company. And that's why those toys are no longer on the market.
2: Mm, <laughs> mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And and of course, there was the Interaceter that shot your eye out, like the Boba <laughs> Fett figure. And that's why they had to recall the Interaceter from the market. It had nothing to do with alien technology being too precious. It shot your eye out. Like, yeah. That's the dangerous. Red Rider BB gun though? So yeah, Red Rider BB gun, though, still completely safe, Phil. Don't but worry. be
0: careful with those interositors.
1: Yeah, you'll, you'll shoot your eye out. <laughs> <laughs> I would love a Christmas story if it was about an interociter being played <laughs> with in the backyard. <laughs> Ralphie disintegrates Scott Farkas. <laughs> There's no need for that sequel. No villain for the second film. <laughs> i know my dad did get a red rider bb gun for christmas because my sister knows how much he loves that film oh
2: that's cool (laughs) he's
1: he keeps it in the box he keeps he's keeping it in the box (laughs) um now uh exeter explains that the important thing is that they are on the ship and calls for a truce so that they can have the time and means to explain their plight uh and why Metaluna needs their help and he's like I can convince you you're in space by showing you an interocitor and not a space window. <laughs> um, <laughs> Cuz that's what he does. He shows them through the interruster. I'm right. like it's a it's a flying saucer. But there got to be some kind of advanced technology that allows you to lift up the window. But no, the interruster does everything including <laughs> work as a as a, uh, a as a becam, and uh now it's so start Getting hard for them to breathe because they're going through a thermal barrier, which will cause them some discomfort. But thankfully, they have a solution for that. Um, uh, the, the, they're, they're put into these tubes that uh, adjust them to the atmosphere of both space and the Metalunan planet. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's done through a procedure of conversion to make them suitable for these planets. Even the Metalunans have to do this for entering another atmosphere. So. It's uh, it's very. It's a great excuse to get people into a tube and do smoky things inside of it. Yes. So they actually get. Uh, he he says like, but before you can go into these conversion tubes, we've got to dress you in Austin Powers third act. Guard. <laughs> right. <laughs> so get into these gray suits. Uh, it's uh, and then they get they're they're put under the tubes, and their hands are stuck. To these handles, the magnetic handles, handles. magnetic
0: handles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Now let's analyze that. <laughs> they have no metal on their hands. Nope. Apart from the net, na- well, apart from too much iron in your blood, Mister Garrett.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think maybe that's what they're going for. You know, I mean, ma- Magneto needs utens- to come in and ma- p- p- in provide. Fact, yeah, <laughs> that's where X Men got it from. They watch this movie. There's a mutant, and they're magnetic, and they're able to like pull because of the ma- iron in their blood. It's all-
1: X Men. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Listen, Jack, Jack Kirby, have you ever Jack Kirby? Have you ever seen this Island Earth? <laughs> Wonderful story. I, Stan Lee, have seen that fifteen times, and I think that in order for our villain to be compelling, he needs to be able to do something that a human could never fucking do. And one of those things is to maneuver metal while not being a magnet.
0: <laughs> yes. Also, yes.
1: make him a World War II survivor. <laughs> and oh. also, take no credit for years. <laughs> um, now, so they get, but they go through the the conversion process Cal, uh, uh, they're given speakers, by the way, intercoms in the tubes so they can communicate course, as yes. long as they're conscious. And I like how Cal goes, I feel like a new toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> because it's in
0: packaging, I guess?
1: What? Because you're bristling with stupidity? Is that... <laughs> I don't know. I didn't you get know, that. You f- know, for a scientist, you sure are dumb with analogies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh. you, know, oh, you know that does remind me of my favorite science fiction line in history. Damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a toothbrush. <laughs> oh, and my favorite moment in Star Trek is when uh, Scotty uh, analogized the engine failure to a new toothbrush. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> or oh, to a used toothbrush versus a new toothbrush, Captain. <laughs> um, um, we get more sh- as they're as they're getting converted. By the way, again, the back. The, the backdrop work on this film, the, the plate shots of the spaceship moving. Yeah. Fuck. Great. They're fantastic. There's like, it's it's just, it's, and they're working with a plate that's made up. So it's, it's just a beautiful work of two pieces of art colliding and creating a sense of motion. It's like, it's, it's literally like the clouds, Mr. Hughes and Oakland. Like there's, there is a genuine, like, connoting of speed and danger in those shots. Um and then they started counting meteors, which are controlled by Zagon.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Zagon is their enemy. Uh and just like um environmental disasters are the enemy of Krypton. Uh, right. <laughs> See now this is the reverse yep. though. They saw Superman and said, say what if uh, this mm-hmm, but somehow true. but but not that smart. <laughs> The the, the the writer of the novel was just like I need a I need a story for for uh, for the magazine uh, uh Superman but there's no Superman uh and um uh it's a it's a me- it's a larger metaphor for war okay yeah this'll get bought by Warner Brothers in 1978 <laughs> um, and so the zagon meteors uh are 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 creaming anything metalunan in their sights, um, and uh, they uh, they are wondering why space of uh, the uh, uh, I think it, actually no, it's it's this is what it is. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Phil. Exeter says that the spacecraft of the Zagons are guiding these comets, right? And that they themselves are a planet that was formed from a crater. So yeah. what did the Zagons look like?
0: <laughs> well, and this is a good question. We don't see them. And I always wonder why, I mean, skipping ahead slightly, but we got the mutant. Instead of this whole explanation of what the mutant is, why wasn't that just the Zagons?
1: Well, so, well, I have, like, I have an idea for it. Because when you think a planet being made out of a crater, your first instinct would be the worm thing from Empire Strikes Back. And I think that that's the wrong move, move to go to. I think it's, this thing, it's very simple. If it's a planet formed from a crater, then they all look like Ben Grimm. <laughs> okay. They, okay. They, they, they they are a early version of Ben Grimm. So that, again, makes me think that mm-hmm. Stan Lee saw this movie 15 times and say, you know, we never got a shot of the Zagons. What if we got to see a Zagon? And what if he was teamed up with an elastic man and an invisible <laughs> girl and a flaming douchebag? <laughs> I know. The Fantastic Four. (laughs) And what if I played the mailman in two of those movies? (laughs) Think about it. It's Ant-Man and me the mailman. (laughs) Those are the two only things that'll work in the world of cinema. (laughs) um the zagon meters by the way are getting through the shields so this is a desperate situation yes he's getting through the shields of metaluna itself um and he even says when they're looking at the planet which is kind of like looking at a sun about to explode it it, he literally says like what you see may be the beginning of the end for metaluna and the, they are literally running out of atomic energy and uranium deposits needed to keep the planet defended. And that's when Cal's like, So that's why you used me. Like, it, it very much is he has the secret to build more, u- make more uranium um, because there aren't enough Boy Scouts on a loom, on Metaluna to use their metal detectors to find our Geiger counters to find uranium right. hanging around in the rocks. Um, that was an activity I learned was pretty popular in the 50s was trying to find uranium deposits and sell them to the government um there's a great episode of the jack benny program and by great i mean it's kind of lame but it's great (laughs) because it's out of all the plots you could do for a benny program it makes the least amount of sense as to why you would do it but they have jack actually like when he learns that you can make money for uranium, he drags Mary Livingston out into the middle of the desert <laughs> to look for uranium, <laughs> and he starts turning into Treasure the Sierra Madre for a second. It's cute. Um, so they they land on Metaluna, which has. I wanted to know what your thoughts were on the landing pad of Metaluna because I got I was a little mixed on that effect, it and the hangar do look very much like sketches.
0: Yeah, it's
1: or, or matte map paintings. Matte
0: paintings for sure. Yeah.
1: I mean I it's, I th- it's, it's a I choice. think they lo- <laughs> Yeah, I think that I get the feeling that like cuz Forbidden Planet looks a lot more blended by comparison. Yeah. Yeah. I think though that it's kind of cool having that because it doesn't it, it, it's intrusive, but it also feels appropriate to the era. Yeah. The aesthetic. And frankly, the budget. I feel like the, it, it's funny. Those backdrops would look better to continuity of the film in black and white, which, oh, for sure. which seems counter, which seems counterintuitive because this movie looks beautiful in technicolor, but those backplates look s- too, uh, different. Um, and it's the only time where I've noticed that the backplates don't match the amp, match the perfection. But they're trying to uh, create an ambitious scale when they don't have the money for it. Right. In a sense, there are certain things about it that work, but the whole of it, the the majority of it, is a little inconsistent. Um, it's a great it still looks though. cool, though. <laughs> I know that's the thing. I would want to hang it on the wall. Right. But I don't know if I want it in the movie. <laughs> But I will take it because something that I love about this era is that it's still far more distinguishable, an era in sci-fi, than today's sci-fi, where everything is out of computers. So on the one hand, there's a lended reality. Right. On the other hand, it's a computer, and therefore is ones and zeros, and I can't relate to a computer because I can't tell it what is love or it'll explode. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, it, I mean, it. It to me, it feels like they put an effort into it too. I mean, it it feels like there is care put into it. This is the vision of this planet and stuff. And whether or not it blends perfectly, I feel like they had an artistic choice and they
1: went with it, and and I'm happy with that. Well, and actually, we're both Hitchcock fans. Let's analyze this through Hitchcock's perspective. Sure, his his map paintings ranged from super realistic to possible like definitely fanciful. Yeah. But his map paintings are better than his backplate work. Now, he has a reason for his uh rear projection looking the way it does. It creates a it's what he was comfortable with in the studio and yeah. it does lend into the fantasy of his particular kind of work. Yeah. But the reverse is the case in this island earth where the map paintings don't blend well with the environment, but the, uh, the rear projection is accurate to reality. Yeah. So it's an interesting trade off in terms of what you prefer in a movie. Um, and so monitor, uh, reveals to them that they, uh, need to hold on to the ionization rays in order to safely begin a relo- relocation to earth. And Exeter's is like a peaceful relocation. Mm hmm. We lo- we hope to live in harmony with the citizens of your earth. And then Monitor goes like our knowledge and weapons would make us your superiors naturally. <laughs> it's like it's the most polite way of being told you're being oh, you're being dominated by an alien race. <laughs>
2: right. That
1: is the that is the most polite I have ever heard the evil villain go. Well, obviously we've got to take control of the planet because you guys have about the full education level combined of a preschool student. So (laughs) by our academic standards, you're merely a high school dropout, not a college dropout. Um, To to bring it back to Futurama, as I like too often. Um, uh, So most scientists are dead on their planet, which is why they need the help of these earthlings. Monitor makes a grand speech, by the way, because Cal is going to defend the human race to the nail. Monitor goes,
2: It is indeed typical that you Earth people refuse to believe in the superiority of any world but your own. Children looking into a magnifying glass. Imagining the image you see is the image of your true size. Another
1: thinking point, Mm -hmm. which... Presents itself better than most sci-fi films tend to nowadays because the general conceit is that it's the speech a bad guy gives before an action yeah. film happens. I feel like the slow this movie could be conceived as slow, but one, it moves at a clip, and two, it is more concentrated on dialogue yeah. rather than the special effects, and oddly enough. And so uh Monitor basically alludes to them not knowing their true size as humanity. Mm -hmm. And Cal goes, our our, our true size is the size of our God. And I'm like,
2: (laughs) So in other words,
0: Monitor says, your stupid mind, stupid,
1: stupid. That's enough. I'm going to take out of you. Smack. (laughs) This could have used. This could have used uh, a stupid mind, stupid, stupid, stupid scene in it. It could that have. That yeah. <laughs> has the equivalent of it. Yeah, fuck. Ed Wood ripped this movie off. I'm telling you. Oh, God. What? But but he does change it enough to make it his own. He does. He does. It, it,
0: but there's definitely a lot of references that I'm pretty sure are direct.
1: Ed Wood is the Quentin Tarantino of his day.
0: <laughs> there you go.
1: But but it's... but. The difference is that Quentin does homage. Ed Wood rips off. <laughs>
0: but proudly so.
1: Because, Yes, because I will not get into the argument of if Quentin Tarantino is a genuine uh, creative or if he's just ripping off other people's movies. No, he's a fan of movies, guys. Sorry, <laughs> get over it. Yes, he takes a lot of very specific things, but I'm not holding that against him because Jackie Brown is the best film ever made on the planet. Um <laughs> You not see the end where she 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 drives off and Robert Forster's kind of just left to wonder what if I got in the car with her, <laughs> um, and then you hear Bobby Womack and it's all perfect. Um, now, <laughs> uh, Exeter though does make a plea, and this is where you get Exeter the Humanist. Yes. Um, uh, he really does plead for humanity having lived among them. He's been there a while, uh, which, again, leads cre- credence to our Willy Wonka argument. Yep. And he, he doesn't see humanity as inferior. In fact, he understood, he understood really quickly that they clearly are ahead of something that we aren't, and so there's an inherent respect that comes from Exeter as a result. It's it's the exact opposite of the monitor, but the monitor just orders them into this pod transference chamber, which was a uh, 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 which is basically a shining beaming light that scrambles your brain, um, that they apparently used on other scientists at the mansion. And the monitor says he has wasted their time. And Ruth obviously refuses to go in when they're being led off by Exeter. Um, and Exeter is trying to get them in. Ruth refuses. And then that's when they are halted by the mutant.
2: Mm -hmm. Mutant. Phil,
1: Phil, we got the mutant. We got to the mutant. And then what you didn't see is a deleted scene where a guy in a wheelchair comes up and asks them to join their school. Um, (laughs) (laughs) no, the mutant is actually menial slave labor, much like a bug that they have found on another planet. Right, Willy Wonka syndrome again. Yeah, because they took these beings from another land and made them their slaves, servants. Yeah, yeah. I I wish the mutant had done a song to monitor as he's falling. (laughs) (laughs) Oompa doompa dee dee your arrogance will be the death of thee. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Exeter asked them to cooperate so that they may get away, that they won't, he won't scramble their brains, they won't be harmed or their minds changed in any way if you get into our sunlamp machine. And Ruth goes, you defy the monitor? And Exeter goes, I already have. Ruth goes, do you believe in him, Cal? Cal goes, in this place, I wouldn't believe my own grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> Cal's, Cal's character is inconsistent because his trust was so good up till now (laughs) yeah but well actually he has reached the point where he's just like i cannot trust anything actually it's good natural progression i'd give it an argument that he's finally just like i can't no no i've been lied to too many times now fool me 500 times shame (laughs) on me um or or what is the george bush line you fool me you can't get fooled again (laughs) (laughs) um so he punches Exeter and the mutant approaches before being crushed by exploding debris. <laughs> the same debris that kills the monitor. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, uh, they escape to the car, this little car that gets it. It's, it's like the Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom with the uh, with the, the mining cart. cart yeah. Or even
0: more directly compared to You Only Live Twice, James Bond, inside the, like, the lair at the end, those little, like, monorail trains. It's like,
2: I feel
0: like they watch this and that's where they got that. And then the whole thing falls apart. It's very similar.
1: That's Roger Moore era, right? No, that's
0: uh, uh, Connery, 67, You Only Live Twice,
1: that's right. Yeah, You Only Live Twice. That's right, that's right. That's 69. So then Sean Connery is going like, Shay, what if I saw this movie once, guys? This Island Earth. <laughs> now, hear me out. Yep. What if we got into some? What if we got into some kind of oh uh, car that just appears out of nowhere <laughs> and make us escape that way? <laughs> I haven't seen. You only live twice in a while. That's why I was trying to remember, like. Okay, all these Bond titles interchange. You only live, Thunderball. <laughs> Die another gold member. I've watched the
0: James Bond movies a lot. I once won thirty-five dollars um, at a James Bond trivia contest. Side note here.
1: Good for you. Good for you. I've still never seen a. I've still never seen a lick of the Roger Moore era. Oh, um, that's, that's highly I own underrated. All of, I own all of them, but I have only watched the Connery films once or twice through. And I don't go to this franchise that often unless I am dragged into the annual Daniel Craig Fest, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which not dragged in. I went in lovingly. but, (laughs) um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's feasible. Again, this movie has inspired everything. So
0: much, so much.
1: Yeah. Now, Edgar catches up to them and pleads that he wants to help them and goes like, look, I'm not fucking around guys. Let me help you. And they trust him. They get into the car. Uh, the mutant there's a mutant guarding the entrance to the ship. Exeter goes, step aside fool. And, uh, they get in. Exeter is attacked by the mutant. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, as they're getting in, Cal whacks the noggin of the mutant. And, uh, uh, I do love the line in MST3K like, oh, 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 you knocked out the brains. Out. Oh, there go the piano lessons. Oh, <laughs> oh, and they because the, the look of the mutant is like a big exposed brain. It actually kind of reminds me of the Mars attacks aliens, very much. And so. I would, yep. I, I would assume. That this was an inspired choice from MST3K, except those aliens are based off of trading cards. So the trading card company either saw that design, mm-hmm. or the trading card company just happened to have the same kind of idea at the same time, <laughs> and they were just like, "Say, what if this was scarier?" <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, so um, uh, the they get into the bridge of the ship, little knowing that a mutant, the mutant knocked out, has crawled his way in. Um, Exeter g- begins the the process to depart. Uh, Zagon meters are missing them by a lot much. (laughs) And uh, the inner destroys others heading their way. So they use that as the space beam it's designed for. Um, uh, And as they are escaping and as they're getting away, he goes, that may be the last of them. Yes. And this is when Exeter goes into his speech. They're concentrating all their attention on Metaluna. Those flashes of light...
2: They're meteors. Hundreds of them. The intense heat is turning Metaluna into a radioactive sun. Temperature must be thousands of degrees by now. A lifeless planet. And yet, yet still serving a useful purpose, I hope. Yes, a sun warming the surface of some other world, giving light to those who may need it. Now, into the converter tubes.
1: I want to stop on that. Because Jeff Morrow has become in the process of preparing for this episode. I wasn't giving much attention to his character when watching this Island Earth for the first time on its own merits. I merely looked at the film as a whole and was like, this is competent. I've never had to dissect the characters before. Exeter is one of the coolest science fiction characters I've seen out of this era. And I, I really do think that because that that requires an actor to become introspective while in grief. Yeah. And Jeff Morrow sells it so beautifully. He is really good at this. And I don't think, and it's primarily a vocal performance because there's a lot of shots really of Metaluna going up. I I find that to be, I think that's one of the reasons amongst many, like the mutant and the spaceships and stuff, why sci-fi geeks in the '60s, growing up in the '60s, watching this on television, latched onto this film because it is good.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it. I mean, when you compare it to again, I know I come back to Plan Nine, but obviously that's a pale imitation. But their alien leader, you know, you never like connect emotionally with any of them, and. Exeter actually pulls it off in this, and I think there's a lot of sci-fi from that era that does not tap into any level of emotion. It's all intellectual, you know?
1: Right. Now, normally, we appreciate intellectualism in sci-fi. Sure. In fact, we almost demand it. Um, And in the case of Star Wars, it better be immaculate uh, (laughs) logic or, or everybody will scream like babies. But... This one is Intellect with Emotion. Like it's it's very uh it feels like Star Trek. That's why I say it could be like Star Trek. Yeah. Like you could replace Ruth and Cal with Spock and Kirk. Yep. And like have them like stationed um, at um, at Starfleet headquarters, but then all of a sudden they're suddenly kidnapped, and then, and then like do the plot that way.
0: Yeah, absolutely, that would totally work.
1: You Get like the one episode of Star Trek that has nothing to do with the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, and and it's in that performance that I think makes the ending so powerful for what it is. Uh, I, I wrote this is that like the soliloquy makes it clear that as he's accepting the fate of his planet in person, he has already rehearsed in his head the acceptance speech of, or uh, the acceptance of that fate, not acceptance speech. Sorry, the Oscars <laughs> are on tonight, guys. Uh,
2: uh,
1: that he has accepted this, accept, he has accepted the fate of the planet despite the very human desire to save his planet. So that's why he connects with humans because he himself is in touch with his own humanity. It's yep. It's beautiful. So obvious, but so beautiful. Sometimes the best parts of science fiction are the simplest things and have nothing to do with, well, how did she train to become a Jedi? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, they get into the converter tubes and they're going to get converted into the atmosphere when the mutant attacks, having crawled onto the ship. Ruth screams. The mutant approaches it, even as he, the pressure is about to destroy him. Because Exeter points out, like he won't be out, he won't be abound for long. The <laughs> Pressure's gonna kill him. Um, and Ruth gets out of her tube after being converted and runs. She's terrible at running, by the way. Yeah. She's terrible at it. <laughs> she is r- the the only piece of direction I have for Newman is, yo man, you should have told her to actually run or like <laughs> skip. Be like, Howard Hughes is on his way to the studio. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But she gets thrown down by the mutant. Or she gets thrown by the mutant, like hurled. But then the mutant collapses. It's almost just like, with my last breath, I throw her at thee. (laughs) And then uh, this is something that I loved. Um, I think it was Bob Burns, who's the... um, uh, one of the historians on the behind-the-scenes featurette, and a professional gorilla. Uh, if you uh, if you've seen the King Kong documentary, uh, he uh, repositions the mutants is laying down on the ground, but you can see the stunt man repositioning his leg to be properly cued in for the des- for the transporter effect that huh. happens. You can see it; it's so clearly there. That's great. Um, but R.I.P. Mutant. Let's let's pay homage to the Mutant struggle. Phil, did you know? Did you know that this Mutant suit was operated uh, by Regis Barton? And did you also know that because of the hot lights needed for a Technicolor camera, I'm talking massive amounts of heat emanating off of these studio lights, uh, that the pants. We're, only the com- we're the only comfortable area in this costume. Yeah. That's another thing. This this mutant has pants, Yes, but has no upper, no shirt or anything, no wife beater even. Yeah, it's like a reverse Donald Duck. <laughs> well, they stole from Donald Duck, oh, and yeah. Ed Wood stole from this Islander, so That's Ed right. Wood stole from Donald Duck. <laughs> um, same with Mars Attacks, I guess. Um, now, But that suit, though, found it interesting. It's rubber. It's mat it's a rubber suit. Mm -hmm. During a heat wave in LA, the sweat coming from the actor would pour out of the eye holes. The 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 only detachable part without a struggle was the eyes. The eye holes. So you can look in shots and you can see movement in the eyes it's pools of sweat Phil,
2: <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs>
1: makes the mutant super disgusting yeah
2: i
0: mean it's effective <laughs> as a as a gross you know bad guy though sweating sweating eyeballs Ugh.
1: and and uh, i believe the 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 brain is kind of pulsating a teeny bit so yeah. this not it's not it's not an ineffective suit it's a pretty cool suit for a company that decided to throw its god jack pierce out the fucking door uh, to be replaced by Bud Westmore. The Westmore era did give you a lot of cool makeups like Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, And arguably, this is another one of those examples because I'm assuming this is under the Westmore regime. They're not getting an independent out there. The, the The makeup union was too strong at that point. And the regulations regarding who gets credited as makeup artists uh, were very strict as well. Um, now... Uh, so the butant is dead, and then they're just kind of left in for a long trip. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of just dissolve into the next scene. They eventually reach Earth, but the speed is diminishing. Uh, their their ship is has exhausted all of its resources. Essentially, e- Exeter tells them to get onto the airplane. Says that he will stay aboard and maybe explore a while. I'll find another metaluna. <laughs> you see. I'm more adventurous than you imagine me. And Exeter, Exeter gets told by Cal, Bullshit. <laughs> you used all your power. You're gonna die. Come with us to Earth, please. <laughs> and Exeter's like, nah, nah, nah. I've I've done I've done things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> like tears in and rain. <laughs> Um, and cal and adams go off in their plane and the film's ending on this tragedy note is rather striking to me it's cut short a little bit by the mel blank-esque puttering of the plane's engine (laughs) to get them (laughs) to get them to exit the ship but they uh, the exiting of the ship does look phenomenal uh rex uh rex reason and faith demurg snuggle a little bit uh, and then they and uh, they this line was deleted but they said oh earth thank god this island is still here <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wish uh, and then Exeter goes down with the ship he turns to all the components and interociters tra- and, and said it's been an honor playing with you and the ship crashing and creaming down and bursting into flames is an amazing shot its perspective yeah. of going through the atmosphere and into the ocean before the final crash and explosion and flames it is remarkable speed uh trajectory like it's 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 approximating the intensity like it reminds me of the kind of thrill you can get from a heavy CGI shot of a of uh, of a ship careening down to Earth or something like that or like like in uh, Star Trek: Fall Into Darkness the way they're like piling that ship and the way Abrams is connoting the danger with the speed and the mm-hmm. the way the ship is moving and whatnot it, it's like that um, but then that's the end a Universal picture that's it. a Universal International picture sorry I'll, let's get let's get it proper <laughs> um, now. The reception to this film doesn't happen without some previews. Uh, there was a preview of this film that condensed in January of 1955. Uh, and there uh, the behind-the-scenes featurette of this film was pretty dang cool. Uh, it provided uh, something very interesting in the form of a little tidbit. So when you got a preview card, you get a bunch of questions about you. Uh, same to a cinema scorecard as well right. or an exit survey. I got to take one of these for Borat when my dad took me to an advanced screening of it. Huh. Um, and and I got to I, I remember writing it's perfect, don't change it. <laughs> and <laughs> don't do don't you do a goddamn thing. Don't you don't you cave to any pressure from the MPAA. You keep this here. <laughs> um and uh but the but one of the character question one of the questions was who did you like best in the film? And people have looked through these preview cards, historians, and they've been able to determine a ranking for most popular <laughs> character in the film. Okay. Um, Jeff Morrow got 80 votes. Rex Reason got 53 votes. Faith Domerg got 14 votes. <laughs> And the mutant got four votes (laughs) to which the mutant did say, okay, what if you call Georgia and ask them if they can get me another 800,000 votes, please. (laughs) 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 Just the mutants like, just find them. I know they're there. Um, now the reception to this film though, was box office wise. It was good. Um, on, an eight, on a projected upward of $800,000 investment, uh, this film made $1.7 million at the box office. Okay. Um, now, the reception critically, though, was less than so. Uh, the New York Times writer Harold Tom- Howard Thompson wrote, the technical effects of this island earth, Universal's first science fiction excursion in color, are so superlative, superla, superlatively bizarre and beautiful that so, some serious shortcomings can be excused if not overlooked. So, looks pretty, but has issues. <laughs> um uh, 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 A gentleman named Wit, just Wit, in Variety wrote, special effects of the most realistic type rival the story and characterizations in capturing the interested in this and uh, capture the interest in this exciting science fiction chiller, one of the most imaginative, fantastic, and cleverly conceived entries to date in the outer space film field. Again, backhanded compliments. <laughs> um, <laughs> looks pretty, but is it art? <laughs> right. Um, uh, and this, I know, this is the end of the most positive uh, ones. Uh, K. Uh, Philip K. Sure of the L. A. Times uh, called it one of the most fascinating and frightening science fiction movies to come out of come come to us yet from outer space to the camera and effects men must go the major laurels for making this wonder visible and audible in An awesome technicolor and a soundtrack that is as ear racking as it is eerie. Um, so he, so again, it's all going to the visual effects and all going to the makeups and stuff.
2: Right. Um,
1: the monthly film bulletin though, took the film to task and um, uh, spoke with this as, Faced with the wonders of space, man's reactions prove, as usual, dreadfully limited. The dialogue, especially in the faked-up romance between Doctors <laughs> Beecham and Adam, remains res- resolutely earthbound, while the ending is simply a spatial variation on the conventional curtain. Joseph Newman has done his best to make his characters as intriguing as his special effects, but they have neither the stature nor the ex- the expression. So I say that the critical reception is less than so because it falls into something we see today, which is, Oh, these special effects look amazing, but this story is not great. Right. And like, and that seems to be a more consistent thread with sci-fi films today than what we've been actually talking about today. Um, now it has had reappraisal. Um, uh, the, it, it's been reappraised by filmmakers, uh, uh, film historians, film lovers. Um, uh, uh, the In Phil Hardy's The Orem Film Encyclopedia Science Fiction, it's described as a full-blooded space opera complete with interplanetary warfare and bug-eyed monsters. <laughs> the film's space operatics are given a dreamlike quality and a moral dimension that makes the dramatic situation far more interesting. Um, And um, as of this year this film has a 71 uh rating on rotten tomatoes based on 14 reviews um and uh there are some there are some uh assholes in the group the greater milwaukee today described it as an appalling film (laughs) (laughs) like well
0: um that just feels mm, lazy i think there's a lot more to it than that
1: the greater milwaukee today more like Dumber Milwaukee <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> that showed them. Um, now um, I now we were talking about influencing in all the movies that this is influenced. We yes. haven't even touched on an, uh, an essential one. H.R. Which... Geiger.
0: Oh.
1: And the design of the xenomorphs. Yeah. Um. It's it's been believed that the design of the of the mutant. Um, it may have been an influence on the xenomorphs hmm that's I I, I could see that. I think so in terms of the intricate detailing of the costume, yeah, but I feel like Geiger's coming from an even darker place than this island Earth when he's doing his <laughs> his uh, creatures. I still think HR. Geiger knows Satan somehow <laughs> um, and that's great if he does. Um, but uh, uh, uh and the 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 Metalunan monitor has also been seen in different films and t- games and pop culture paraphernalia. And there's something interesting about this film is that it's one of those films that gets discovered thanks to Castle films, which would release eight millimeter cuttings of the film hmm. and make a condensed truncated, Silent version, usually, really, and they described this in the behind the scenes featurette as something that I thought was I thought it was super on point the There is so much visual acumen being portrayed that the dialogue isn't specifically necessary to enjoying the film, and I think we saw that exemplified in the reviews that we were talking about, just right. Like. <laughs> This is a pretty film to watch. Even in black and white on 8mm, uh, you are still seeing some of the cool stuff that gets you interested in sci-fi. Spaceships, aliens, yep. uh, explosions, all those things that George Lucas saw and said, say what if this, but if it ruins the internet forever? <laughs> um, <laughs> I've, what if I ruined everything and then sold it to... Just- to a company for $4 billion. And then people suddenly clamor for my frame, for my prequels. That'll show them. <laughs> um, uh, uh, now, of course, though, it's, it's been, it's been referenced in so many other pieces of, uh, of pop culture. Uh, Weird Al Yankovic uh, has an interoster in the film UHF mm-hmm. uh, and for yep. dare to be stupid. Uh, the misfits have a song called This Island Earth on American Psycho, the album. Uh, Gawar uh, 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 had a, a short form film, Skullhead Face, that contains numerous references to the film, including the title and Alien. Uh, with an oversized brain posing as a human and a communication between aliens using interstellar teleconference device. And the title of this short-form film is called This Toilet Earth. Because <laughs> um, of course, Guar, of course you would, and I love you for it. Um, and uh, the Metaluna mar- mutant is seen in one of Joe Dante's greatest films, Looney Tunes Back in Action, the superior Looney Tunes film. Uh, He is one of the many uh, sci-fi 50s aliens that is trapped in Area 52. Um, uh, And he actually takes the... uh, 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 It's released by Marvin... They're released by Marvin the Martian in the scene to take the Queen of Diamonds card, which leads to the Mona Lisa, which leads to the Blue Monkey. (laughs) Um, But of course... I
0: thought when you said Joe Dante's film, I thought you were going to talk about Explorers, Which also featured a clip of this movie.
1: Yes, I was. I just wanted to give love to Looney Tins. Oh, okay,
0: okay. Well, I'm just saying Joe Dante likes this movie. Oh,
1: yes, he does. He does. Yes, in Explorers. uh, It's one of the films that uh, Ethan Hawke's character is watching in the film. Yes, yes. And he's on the featurette, by the way. And he's going to come up in this discussion. But again, Matt and Tyler aren't here (laughs) to call me a liar. So I'm going to tell the truth. In front of a true believer like you, Phil. Okay. Looney Tunes back in action is the closest we'll get to an actual Looney Tunes movie. Hmm. That's it. Now, now, uh, sorry, I have to stick that flag in the ground and say, I claim this planet in the name of Mars. (laughs) Um, Now, of course, though, we get to the year 1996. Mystery Science Theater 3000 is on. Uh, the death heels of the comedy channel at this point, they're about to basically be done. Joel Hodgson has left the show. Mike Nelson is now the new subject, uh, human subject on the ship. Yes. And in between their decisions of whether or not to go to, what, did it, what like how are they going to keep the show going? They are doing live shows. And one of the live shows they did was This Island Earth. It got a great reception. And they strike a deal with Universal to make a movie. And the movie that they selected had to be from the universal canon. And they chose This Island Earth because it checked all the boxes of what they look for for the humor in those films that they make fun of. And I will say that they are absolutely correct in that assertion. Like, you know like you've got bumbling scientists at points because he does lumber around (laughs) um you you have prime material with joe and you have prime material even with the uh the metalunin look Mm -hmm. the mutant um the the green plane is kind of weird when you when you objectively think of a plane just suddenly turning green the way it does it does look cheesy as kevin murphy said um Uh, it had these elements that the writing crew enjoyed. A hero who's a big-chinned white guy scientist with a deep voice, (laughs) a wormy sidekick guy, huge four-headed aliens who nobody can quite figure out are aliens. (laughs) There's just something different about them. And a couple of rubber monsters who die on their own without the hero ever doing anything. (laughs) It's cheesy enough to get the job done. And especially in 1996 where... Science fiction has had entries such as Predator, Alien, Aliens, Predator 2, (laughs) um, Star Wars, (laughs) Uh, 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 Blade Runner even. Science fiction has hit a whole other level of maturity or um, badassery in the case of the Predator movies. (laughs) And and so these films are starting to be seen as cheesy Saturday afternoon matinees. And so they do the film. They riff the entire film. And then they had to cut parts of this island earth, obviously for the structure of MST three K. Right. Where they have cut sequences mainly to go to commercial on television. But in the case of this, it's to do extended versions of the sketches they would do in between Uh, times in the in the movie sign theater so the film then gets trimmed even further universal demanded even more cutting to this film and so the mst3k movie becomes an injustice to this island earth and mystery science theater 3000 (laughs) itself because the runtime on the movie is 74 minutes the runtime of a general episode of MST3K is 90 minutes yep. because they actually have more of the movie in there. When you watch Mystery Science Theater 3000 after watching This Island Earth, you can tell how expedited it feels. Um, now, that is a disservice to This Island Earth, not brought on by the MST3K crew. This is Universal's fault and their fault alone. Um, one that Frankly, makes them look like idiots. <laughs> it's the stupidest thing ever. No wonder Gramercy went into the ground. <laughs> they mishandled Mallrats, and they mishandled MST3K. <laughs>
0: yeah, and if I remember correctly at the time, because I was uh senior in high school when this came out, and I loved watching the show. I don't think I even knew there was a movie coming out. I didn't see it until... On VHS, like a couple years later, because it was nobody promoted it, you know. I mean, this is pre internet or mostly pre internet, so <laughs> I had no idea it even existed. And I was like the key demographic.
1: This movie was released on April 19th, 1996, in only 26 theaters, Phil. Yeah, and where did you grow up? <laughs>
0: uh, Big Bear, California, a small mountain town that did not uh, find itself amongst those uh, few theaters.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, there's no way that Big Bear was gonna have this movie
0: no no it did not
1: <laughs> you're you're you got alien and aliens you did not get Mystery Science Theater 3000 the movie nope. <laughs> people 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 do tend to think that mst3k is a property that is so well known it's not it's got its audience right. there's a reason why Netflix canceled the show not enough people apart from Mysties, were watching it. <laughs>
0: Yes, but those of
1: us that love it, love it dearly. Yeah, and we kept circulating the tapes. That's right. And <laughs> or in my case sending YouTube links to people. Um and and watching the Netflix run to the point where the Gizmoplex now exists. I I still haven't signed up yet cuz it's it's slightly out of my price range. It's not unaffordable. I just there are other priorities at the moment. Yeah. But Joe Dante gets angry at the MST3K film because of, I think that's the fact that they're making fun of it irks him a little bit, but he brought up a very good point. So on Mystery Science Theater 3000, whenever they did a color film, they had to do a process where they had to degrade or put a filter over the film itself so that the silhouette could be seen.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, in the case of black and white films, it was tinting it blue because uh, hmm. then that would make the black stand out or like adjusting a, uh, adjusting a little bit. Right. On technicolor films, it helps if the film has degraded quality because then the cr- the very harsh blacks of the silhouette can be seen. So he attributed it to well, he attributed disservice in the fact of it makes this island earth look like trash. Hmm. Because if you watch the restored or the, the the Blu-ray of MST3K, the movie, this island earth doesn't look as good as it does in the transfer that exists from Scream Factory itself. This movie hmm. is as beautiful as Forbidden Planet in its look and style. And yet it is not given that satisfaction by Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. Now, I don't hold that against them because they had to do that to make their format work. Right. But I think that comes to the big question of the day. Is this film deserving of the MST3K treatment, or was there doing it at all unfair to the film?
0: See, I think it was definitely, I I think it was definitely worthy of it. But I also don't think that just because it's worthy of the treatment, it makes it bad. And I think that that's something that people misunderstand. Like, I think you mentioned this earlier, but you should be able to laugh at things that you love. You know, acknowledge the things that are funny about it. Because even though I love, like, you know, sci-fi and and movies from this era, uh, you know, B movies, like. It's fun to laugh at them, but I also appreciate them for what they are. So, yes, right. I think it is worthy of it, but I don't think that means that it was a bad movie.
1: Right. And I think what gets lost in it is that mystery science theater as a show primarily focused on subpar to to absolute trash. Yeah. Like Manos the Hands of Fate is not <laughs> a, is is barely it's it's not a movie. It's an assemblage <laughs> of moments, <laughs> um, and a kick-ass score. Um, <laughs> I love that score to Manos, um, but like Bride of the Monster* is a good example of it. That's a cheesy sci-fi monster horror movie with low production design, but we still enjoy it as Ed Wood fans. Yeah, um, the Crawling Eye. Has mm. a lot of fun stuff in it, even though it's it's not a great movie, but it's a fun movie. It People is. can enjoy it. Um, the brain that wouldn't die is pretty ch- damn cheesy, but the idea is horrifying. Oh yeah, <laughs> the the that head on the platter unnerves me, unnerves me mercilessly, and the plot of that film where he's basically a serial killer is is just damned unnerving. Uh, uh Bert I. Gordon films. The late we just lost Burt I. Gordon, by the way. Um, uh, R.I.P. to the man who made it possible for us to believe that giant animals could exist. <laughs> um, watch Amazing Colossal Man, dude. It's so much fun. It's a good science fiction movie from AIP, and it is a good MST3K episode. Yeah. These things do coexist. I agree. And and I do think that you know unless it's a manos the hands of fate the movies range in their popularity and then their of the in their approval of the era that grew up with them on television when it was cheap to get these films yeah but but riff tracks i think has actually been the answer to this question because riff tracks has riffed on wonderful classic films and those riffs are still fucking funny
0: absolutely i, I actually got to go see a live riff tracks and they did, uh, I think it was Indiana Jones, some one of them. I'm pretty sure it was an Indiana Jones movie. I can't remember which one, but uh, obviously a great movie, and it was hilarious. It doesn't matter if it was great; it's finding the humor in there. Mm-hmm. I think it just reemphasizes how fun those movies are.
1: Yeah, and like like from my end of the spectrum, Riff Tracks did Halloween, and it was wonderful. I I synced up that commentary. Titanic is a great movie. And I I know that that has a little contention from people, but it is a great movie, guys. You just got to admit it. it is a great movie. <laughs> but it has one of my favorite riff tracks lines ever when they go onto to the close-up of Bernard Hill when the ship is launching and, and Kevin Murphy goes, I'm going to sick this bitch. <laughs> 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 um, uh, uh, and so I think that it, it, I think that film film fans, film historians, we tend to get clingy to the things that we are passionate about and yeah. we'll defend them mercilessly and protect them like a mother with their child. Um, and I think that that's both a benefit and a detraction to uh, the art of film criticism and the heart of film history is because I think in order to understand why you love a movie, you have to reconcile the goofy parts of a movie because a movie is not real. Right. So every movie by nature is goofy and doesn't make sense. It's why I have fun with some parts of the Star Wars sequels, but I reconcile that and have fun with the new Star Wars sequels. I don't think too hard about logic and trash it. Um, And I think that mystery science theater doesn't do that. It looks at films with obvious flaws and has fun with them, but it never pretends like the bots aren't having fun with this. They'll make a statement in, they'll make a statement in the episode of going like, can we go now, Mike, please. Or, you know, like, oh, torture would be more minutes of this movie, but yet they're having fun. They're enjoying it. And they create sketches based around, the movies right they don't hate the movies that they're doing except for manos that pissed frank Conniff off <laughs> like they they it was the worst thing they had ever seen come through the window and it apparently was a torturous thing to 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 be subjected to it's one of the few films where you can be like no 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 no. <laughs> there is no justifying this film and even i justify it going like well it's super interesting that this weird guy in texas thought he could make a movie yeah um or like The Room. The Room is another good example. Oh my Terrible gosh. movie. But I love The Room. Fascinating, I, yes. <laughs> I love it so much. It's possible to love something while poking fun of it. Yeah. It's why roast comedy exists. Do you actually think Don Rickles hates the people he's making fun of? <laughs> no. He literally says, "I love everybody." That's why I make fun of them.
0: Well, I I think they I think the MST3K guys give great advice in the show's opening, uh, which is just repeat to yourself: "It's just a show." You should really just relax. They're just yeah. having fun, guys.
1: Yeah, and I think that I I understand where the historians on the featurette and Joe Dante are coming from. I don't. I think they're a little too hard on MST3K. It's yeah. one thing to be like, well, this didn't deserve um, uh, to this to happen to the film because it's a glorious Technicolor spectacle and they degraded the color. But its I don't think it's fair for them to be like, well, they're making fun of a movie that's genuinely good and so therefore it hurts the movie. In 1996, maybe you have a point but the internet came not too long after that. And it was then very easy for people to write clarifying articles and reviews going like this Island earth was the subject of mystery science theater 3000. But did you know it's actually good? What? (laughs) It's a Buzzfeed article. You know, I, I do. I do think that like people are intelligent enough to discern the content for themselves. And the people who enjoy this Island earth on its terms, and appreciate the intelligence it has for it, are people who are disposed to the sci-fi genre. I yep. realistically don't know if this works for the regular audience anymore. Because, I mean, my girlfriend's a perfect example. She loved the Mystery Science Theater version of it. We were watching the film on its own, and she was starting to rip herself <laughs> because it it didn't work for her, and that's totally fine. You know, I, I accepted it. Like, I, I... I did kind of be like, "Hey, you're being a little too harsh on. This film. Like, <laughs> the plot is actually really good, but like, but that's the thing. Not every movie has to be for everybody, and I think that people who get up in arms about what Mystery Science Theater did with it really comes down to like, yeah, but you're being overprotective, because it's easy to make fun of Forbidden Planet with Leslie Nielsen jokes. It's super easy. <laughs> right. Super. The the material's right there. Uh Robbie the robot is fun to make fun of, but he's also one of the best robots that's ever existed in a film. <laughs> Everything can coexist in the same space. It doesn't matter what like it, the I think it's actually healthy to engage in a MST3K atmosphere. Absolutely. Because it allows you it lo- allows you to be realistic with what you're watching. Yeah. Realism Realism doesn't come from the movies. Realism comes from you understanding a movie's flaws and while you st- and why you can still appreciate it. I don't care if Rose McGowan's machine gun leg doesn't make logistical sense. <laughs> I love machine ma- ma- mach- uh, uh, Rose McGowan's machine gun leg because it's a machine gun leg. <laughs> and it is perfectly acceptable to make fun of that machine gun leg. But it's still a fucking cool machine gun leg, <laughs> and that and and I think that that is kind of an amazing part of this island Earth is that it gives you the best of both worlds. It gives you a sci-fi piece that makes you think and get and gives you substance, and at the same turn, it is also something goofy enough to riff on with your friends. Yep. Um, Phil, I want to know: Do you have any other? Overarching thoughts about this island Earth and how you would recommend it to people, and like, and actually, here's a question, a follow-up question: Would you encourage them to watch MST3K first or the movie itself first?
0: Well, so my preferred, uh, my preferred approach for all MST3K, if possible, if you have access to it, is to always watch the movie in its original form first, because uh, you know you're not going to get a true representation of how you feel about the film if you've got those jokes right because once you've heard them make the jokes you can't go back you can't look at the alien or at the at the mutant and not think uncle scrotor once you've heard them say uncle scrotor that's what you'll always think so if you want to get a true perspective on it you got to watch the original first and yeah i think this movie is definitely uh, it's a good i think it's a good introduction to someone who might be interested in older sci-fi because it does have you know, it's it's a higher quality than some of the stuff that might have come out back then. And it might have a wider appeal than, you know, cheesier ones. And if you don't like it, then maybe 1950 sci-fi isn't for you, you know? <laughs>
1: I agree. I agree. Um, I would go with showing them Mystery Science Theater first and then the movie for the express purpose of uh lowering expectation.
0: I could see that. Because I, I think that.
1: that the 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 MST3K movie breaks it down to its to its cheesy essentials. <laughs> but I think it's almost impossible. Almost. To see that movie and not be fascinated by the special effects no matter what they're making fun of. Yeah. And if you are a curiosity hound, you'll want to watch the movie on its own merits, especially when you learn that the movie was trimmed down. You'll want to see the thing in its entirety, and then that's when people will start... They don't have the filter of MST3K attached to it, so they can listen to Exeter's speeches and find the substance in them. If they like the movie, is another thing. They might be able to at least concede that the movie is... Better than most of the MST3K movies that come down the pipeline from a critical standpoint.
0: <laughs> definitely,
1: but definitely. they may not love the movie, and that's fine. Maybe they, and if they prefer MST3K, the movie, totally understand it. Um, you know, and I've always said like this: Island Earth is pretty is a pretty cheesy movie, but as always, anytime I try to watch the film on its own, it ends up surprising me. And this deep dive that we were able to do into this Island Earth was a was the best possible. Way to get reacquainted with both pieces of material because it brought me inner peace with my decision to say, "Can't we just have both?" <laughs> instead of <laughs> instead of drawing a flag, drawing drawing a line in the sand of a battle that means nothing. Uh, it's 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 a pointless, stupid argument. Both things are perfect for what they are, and they have ability to exist in the. Space of film. The overarching theme of Ballyhoo has ended up being that all of this stuff can exist. You know, MST3K yep. and This Island Earth, Marvel and Scorsese, Spielberg <laughs> and Everything Everywhere all at once, at all of it can live together. It's not one versus the other guys. It's it, the one the 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 fear of the other is called xenophobia. <laughs> and in a sense this is being xenophobic towards a genre of film <laughs> or a type of presentation. Stop hating. Just relax. It's just a fucking movie. <laughs> and on that note, Phil, thank you for sitting back and really just relaxing for Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review 3000.
0: Oh, <laughs> um, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's always a treat.
1: Really quickly, you have two podcasts. They're wonderful. Spill the beans. Where can people find the lovely Phil Vecchio's Dulcet Tones?
0: Excellent. Well, I do have two uh, main shows that I do. The first one is called The Mandarian Orange Show. I do that with my wife, uh, Janelle, and it is intentionally Mandarian, misspelled, R-I-A-N, like it sounds. We uh, we talk a lot of stuff. I mean, we like to call ourselves a comedy show because we think we're funny. Hopefully you do too. But we talk pop culture, travel, and all kinds of fun stuff in between there. So that's one. My other one is an episode-by-episode podcast about the excellent 1980s TV show Family Ties. It is called Alex P Keaton is my friend, and we actually just released our 100th episode uh, this last week. So, pretty excited for
1: that. Wonderful! I'm super excited to uh, to for people to tune in to Mandarin Orange Show because I've been telling them to for the last two times we've been on here. But now you'll have a direct reason because I'm going to be on your show. That's right. <laughs> yeah what did we record beforehand phil a nice little nice segment nice uh as part of as part of your overarching lovely show that dedicates to your life and your travels i was very honored to be uh brought into that segment especially what we ended up talking about i was like <laughs> oh this is very nice i love i love hearing the story that you guys told me of just like this is what we did we did it for the first time we're excited and i'm like oh that's that just warmed my heart. It made it made me so happy to come into the Zoom room, uh, to to have that in there.
0: Oh, that's um, awesome. I've been I gotta tell you, I've been excited. I don't want to spoil it, I want people to get to hear what it is, but I've been planning this surprise ever since you uh, you we talked about me doing this episode. I'm uh, like, Oh, this is gonna be fun. I can't wait to I can't wait to talk this with Zach. So check it out
1: for sure. Thank you so much. Well, coming up on the program, uh, we are gonna have Ryan Frost back on for Babyface, uh, the the seminal pre-code classic. We're gonna have Bradley Haig on for War of the Worlds with George Powell um coming uh coming into the scene of the Ballyhoo. Um and Adam Jewell will be returning for a fistful of dollars. Starring <laughs> me, the guy who talked to a chair. Um, yes. Spaghetti westerns are invading the Ballyhoo. It's going to be a, a it's going to be a violent and delicious time for all. So, until all of that, and until next time folks, good night. Phil, push the button. <coughs> This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost and our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Thanks again and stay tuned for Mitchell, which follows after station identification.